Hello, everybody, and welcome to the December 2022 edition of Right on Prime. That's right, the holiday edition. And here with me to enjoy some holiday cheer is Adrian Salim. Good to see you, Adrian. Yeah, you too, Heidi. How are you doing? I am doing excellent, Adrian. But what's extra exciting is I am not on the holiday schedule for the first time in years. Wow, like not Christmas or New Year's, like both of them off? Both of them off. No way. Right? How did that happen? I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not going to (laughs) ask in case it's like actually just a mistake. (laughs) That's unbelievable. And rather than rub it in, I think you have something you wanted to talk about today, didn't you? I do. Yeah, I don't have a specific case like usual. I just wanted to talk about ankle sprains. So yeah, we see ankle sprains all the time, but I find there's just like a really wide practice variation uh, when it comes to management. And I'm really not sure sometimes what to do in terms of like, should I be recommending things like exercises? Should I be recommending, you know, braces? Should I be sending all these patients to physiotherapy? So I, I sometimes I just I just not really sure kind of the specifics of how I should be managing these patients. Oh, I'm especially excited to hear about braces because anytime a patient says, do you think I need a brace? My answer is yes. And then it's followed in my mind by this complete blank of, but I have no idea what kind or how to recommend it to you. And there's so many different types, there's so many different options, it gets really, really confusing. So I thought what we would do is go over kind of the standard management of ankle sprains and then just get into some evidence and get into some specifics of of what we should be doing. Does that sound good? That sounds perfect to me. So we're going to talk about lateral ankle sprains. I've included in this, like if you see someone and they have a tiny little avulsion fracture off their distal fibula, I'll include that here with lateral ankle sprains. We're going to be excluding medial ankle, like deltoid ankle sprains, ankle fractures, high ankle sprains. They're really important topics, but we're going to save that for another day. So I should mention here that there is a lot of data out there on ankle sprains, a lot of randomized controlled trials, a lot of systematic reviews, and there's a lot of conflicting data. So I'm going to try my hardest to summarize the data as best as I can, and then kind of give my takes a little bit, kind of editorialize this as well. Ankle sprain grading system. Lateral ankle sprains are classified into a grading system, grade one, two, and three. Grade one. And so a grade one sprain is if there is a sprain of the lateral ligament, but there's no tear. Grade two. Grade two sprain is if there is a partial tear. Grade three. Then a grade three is if there is a complete tear of that lateral ligament system. But I'm sure you can see why this classification is problematic, especially if you're seeing the patient right after they've injured their ankle, and especially if you're seeing them you know, in, in your office, right? I don't have the MRI vision, nor do I have an MRI machine in the lunchroom at the office. It's impossible to know. The test that you can do and they talk about is the anterior drawer test, right? To see if there's any laxity in the ligaments, especially the lateral ligaments. But it's unreliable, especially initially, just because there's so much pain and there's so much swelling. It, it, you can't really get a sense if there's any laxity of the joint. So instead, some references use a sort of more subjective grading system, but it's more based on pain and swelling and if the patient's able to weight bear which is by no means a perfect system, but it is more realistic than grading based on ligamentous injury. So Adrian, when I see a patient who I think has an ankle sprain, I usually tell them to use rice, you know, good old fashioned rest, ice compression, and elevation. Is this evidence-based? Should we be telling our patients this? R is for rest. Rest is a good idea, but there should be a really big caveat here. Sure, you want to rest the ankle if you can't weight bear, but as soon as they're able to start putting weight on it, they really should start doing that. They really should start mobilizing on it because early mobilization has been shown to be beneficial for this. So they can use crutches, you know, in the interim if if the pain is is too bad and they really can't weight bear. But as soon as it starts to improve, they really should start putting some weight on it. And then they really should start doing some mobilization exercises 
as well. And we're going to get into that in just a second. I is for ice. Ice seems to be helpful as well, especially for the first few days. There's really little downside to it. So I'd say go right ahead and do it. C is for compression. Elastic compression braces or an elastic wrap appears to be helpful as well. They're relatively inexpensive and again, really little downside. So I'd say why not? I'd, I'd give that a thumbs up as well. So there is some evidence that the combination of an elastic compression brace with like a, a more rigid brace is even better. And again, we're going to get into bracing as well in just a little bit. So just hold on to that. E is for elevation. Elevation, probably helpful. And there's really little downside to it. So I'd give that a, uh, a thumbs up as well. With the exception of relative rest and early mobilization, I'd say that the rice mnemonic holds up pretty well here. Yes, I'd say rice is a good idea and keep encouraging that for your patients. I should also mention here that, you know, the usual stuff that we recommend, Tylenol, NSAIDs, are also shown to be beneficial in studies. So again, I think we can go ahead and, uh, and recommend those as well. Bracing. What should we be recommending to our patients? Should everybody with an ankle sprain get a brace? And if so, what type? So the first type of brace is that elastic compression brace that we, we talked about earlier in the rice part. So it's basically just like an elastic kind of sleeve that goes around the lower leg and around the foot and the ankle. They give you a little bit of support, but they're not, you know, overly supportive. Then there are these like lace-up braces that kind of look similar to the elastic brace, except for that they tie up and they provide a little bit more support than the elastic compression brace. So then there's a, a stirrup brace. And so that's got these like two sides going down on each side of the lower leg, and then they kind of wrap around the heel, right? Can you picture that? Yeah, totally. And then finally, there are those walking boots, those like big kind of bulky walking boots. And now for the evidence. Yeah, so the most studied brace appears to be this like stirrup type brace that um, we're talking about. And in several studies, they have shown to improve functional outcome, pain, and patients seem to have less recurrent ankle sprains when they use them. There is some evidence that a combination of an elastic compression brace with that stirrup brace is going to provide better results than either alone. There's also evidence that that lace-up brace is also helpful. And then for severe ankle sprains, you can consider a short course, and that means less than 10 days or so of immobilization with either a cast or one of those like bulky walking boots as well. Okay, so to summarize this to solidify my understanding of braces... You should be using either a stirrup brace, a tie-up brace, or a combination of elastic compression with stirrup brace. Exactly. There are a ton of different options out there, and prices really vary as well. Like I was just looking, the lowest kind of end of the spectrum is around $30, and it can go up to, to quite a bit. So it can go up to about $300 as well. So there's a huge range, and I think patients can kind of pick out which one you know best suits them. Exercises. Now, what about exercise? Should our patients be exercising when they have a sprain? If so, what kind should they be doing? First off, a structured exercise routine has been shown to be beneficial in most studies. And so exercises should be started early, like as soon as the pain and swelling will allow it, patients should start doing some exercises. And then the frequency and the type of exercises that the patients are doing should be increased gradually as you know their pain and their swelling improves. Okay, okay. Should patients be doing this on their own or should they do it under the supervision of a physical therapist? Yeah, so studies that looked at supervised versus home exercise program has found kind of conflicting results. There was one randomized control trial that I found that did find a supervised program had benefit over a home exercise routine. So my take home is that anyone who is an athlete or very active and they're really eager to get back to their usual activity, sure, I think they probably will benefit more from a you know physiotherapist referral. 
Say the patient already has a physiotherapist for another reason and they're keen on seeing them again, then sure, I think there's very little downside for a referral to, to physical therapy. I think it's kind of a discussion to have with the patient to see what their preference are. You know, let's just say physical therapy is not uh, within their means and not an option. What regimen should we be recommending? Yeah, so I'm by no means a rehab expert or a physical therapist, but there are a few exercises I recommend to patients. I normally say you can start with toe circles. So that's just, you know, having the foot extended and then just doing little circles with a toe to try and just kind of get some range of motion going in the ankle. Drawing out the alphabet with the toes is another sort of exercises to do initially, kind of along the same lines as those toe circles. Toe curls are an option as well. So that's where the patient has a towel on the ground and they use their toes to kind of pinch it and then they lift it up. And then sort of as the pain and swelling improves and they can progress to other things like balance exercises. Now, if you go online, you can find a lot of handouts and different exercise regimens. I like the one from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, and we'll put a link to this in the show notes. Okay, perfect. Adrian, can you just give us the quick summary of the short snappers on what we need to know about ankle sprains? Recap. Okay, so rice seems to be effective, so I'd keep recommending that with the caveat, again, that early mobilization has been shown to be beneficial. In terms of braces, I give that a thumbs up. So I would recommend either a lace-up brace or possibly a uh, stirrup brace. And then in terms of exercises, patients really should be counseled to start exercises as soon as they are able to. And if the patient is a you know, high-level athlete or they want to get back to exercise uh, and activity sooner, then a physical therapy referral could be suggested. What a helpful review. Thank you. Now I feel ready to deal with the next ankle sprain that hobbles through my door. But lucky us, there's even more to come here on Right on Prime. Yeah, for sure. So Casey Parker's here with a piece on Hocus for Lymph Nodes. Penny brings us another chapter in her contraception series. And of course, don't forget PCMA. We've got Hobie, rural medicine piece, and a really good urgent care piece as well. There is so much to listen to and learn from here. So it's the holiday season. Pour yourselves an eggnog with or without the rum and go sit by the fire and enjoy all that is right on Prime, December 2022. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. So I want to talk about medication adherence today, and I want to start with a story. Everything is better when it starts with a story, Hobartley. So tell me, tell me the story. When I was a resident, I spent a month in rural Uganda working in a small hospital. And as part of that rotation, I had the opportunity to do C-sections. And in one of those surgeries, I accidentally stuck myself with a needle. So at the time, HIV testing was not readily available at this hospital, so I didn't know the HIV status of this patient. I did, however, bring HIV post-exposure prophylaxis exactly for this reason. And I can't remember the names of the medicines I was prescribed, but I remember there were two different bottles and two different regimens, and like one pill was like three times a day, and the other bottle was like <laughs> two pills twice a day or something like that. And I remember thinking, I've got to take these pills correctly. I don't want to screw this up. And so at the end of the month, when I should have been done with my prophylaxis, I remember that one of the bottles I finished too early, meaning I took more than I should have. And the other <laughs> bottle had leftover pills, meaning I took less than I should have. And uh, I, just, I just remember looking incredulously at this empty bottle and then the bottle with a few pills thinking, how did this happen? Like, how, how could this happen? I'm a doctor. 
I'm super careful. I'm very motivated to try to take these medicines correctly. And I couldn't. Now, you know, fortunately, I got tested several times after I returned my trip and I'm HIV negative. And, you know, it all has a happy ending. But like, it was a very sober reminder to me, like, even under the best circumstances, like medication adherence is like really tricky. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a totally humbling experience. Anytime you are responsible for your own medications or when you're responsible for anybody else's. I mean, you, you have kids too, Hopi. So I'm sure there's been at least one course of antibiotic suspension for an otitis media oh, in your yes. family where you get to the end of 10 days. You're like, oh, my gosh, there's half the bottle left here. Have I given right. this child any medication whatsoever? That's right. But now that we know that they need less medications for these kind of things because of, you know, our research in antibiotics, I feel better. But gosh, totally yes. bad at that. Totally bad at oh, it. I can't tell you all the times I've squirted the suspension in their mouth. They spit it out. And I'm looking, <laughs> did they get some? How much did they get? Is that 50% of a dose? Should I give them 50%? Right. And if we're struggling, how much are our patients struggling when it comes to taking medications or giving medications to their dependents? Yeah. So let's talk about that. So let's start with some definitions. We often talk about medication adherence or compliance, but those are not exactly the same thing. So medication compliance is how closely a patient follows a physician's plan and that really failure is like non-compliance, right? Oh, and that just sounds so harsh, right? Like the word compliance sounds like I am bending you to my will, which That's right. I mean, there's a little bit of that in medicine, but mostly not anymore. So if we can contrast compliance to adherence, adherence focuses on a mutual patient-physician goal creation and emphasizes the patient's freedom of choice. So we don't talk about compliance here. We talk about two you know, independent people coming up with a plan and the patient's uh, adherence to that plan. There are other definitions of adherence and compliance, but we're going to stick with this one to kind of simplify our discussion. And we're going to focus on patient adherence here and not non-compliant. What do we actually know about medication adherence? The CDC estimates that non-adherence causes 30 to 50 percent of chronic disease failures and over 125,000 deaths per year. Wow. Yeah. For example, in patients who stop their statins, up to half of them have a 25% increase in dying in the next year. Well, I also heard that 20 to 30% of the prescriptions we give people, the new prescriptions, they're never actually filled. So imagine that one out of four prescriptions that we take the time to do up and talk to our patients about are not filled. Yeah, can you imagine? You know, I, I would just say, when I see a patient, I assume that when I send an electronic prescription, that the patient it goes to the pharmacy, fills it, and takes it. And I would say, in my system, I don't really have a great way to know if a patient does not fill or take their medication. Do you have a good system to know if your patients are filling or taking their medicine? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> we do not. We still use paper prescriptions, so there's even more room for... Uh non-adherence there because they have to remember to hold on to a piece of paper and take it to the pharmacy too. So yeah, it's an area that we could really improve upon. And I would say the other thing we know is about half the time medicines are not taken as prescribed. So after about six months, more than half the patients who are taking chronic disease medications, they either are taking less than prescribed or they have stopped the medicine altogether. Wow. And whoa. I'm just saying whoa and wow a lot here, Obi, because <laughs> these numbers are surprising me. Yeah, and specifically about antihypertensive medications, only about half those patients take those medications long-term, and those that don't take their medicines as prescribed are less likely to reach blood pressure control than those who are adherent, obviously. 
which is why you always ask, are you taking your blood pressure medication before you prescribe them that second blood pressure medication? Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that we'll talk about. But I think one of the things that when patients are struggling with chronic disease management, and we say, oh, you're, it's not working, this medicine's not working, you need more medicine, you need stronger medicine, you need additional doses, you need higher dosages, like, I'll just say my assumption is the patients are 100% adherent. <laughs> They're doing exactly <laughs> what we told them. And so thus, we must do more, right? When actually what I should really do is verify that they're actually agreeing to the plan that we've previously set up. Another way to look at medication adherence is to talk about the money side of things. It's really hard to quantify the costs of non-adherence, but it looks like maybe $100 billion, yes, billion dollars, are attributed to increase in health costs because people don't take their medications. So we know that patients are either discontinuing or changing their medication regimen all on their own. And the AMA actually recommends considering non-adherence as the first investigation on why a patient's chronic disease is not under control. Just like you were saying, if somebody comes in and their asthma is flaring, well, are you taking your puffers? And how do you take your puffers? I think that's a great comment. And I think it's a good sobering reminder to me that as I'm talking to patients, talking about adherence, asking them about their medications and reviewing their, whether they're taking them like we kind of agreed to is a, an important first step. Yeah, so before we jump on our patients, let's acknowledge that we as physicians traditionally do a very poor job of explaining to patients on how to take their meds. I'll be honest, I don't always go over with patients how to take their meds, the number of pills they should be taking, how many times a day they should be taking it, whether to take it with food or on an empty stomach to avoid certain foods. Like there's just so much nuance around that, and I don't always take the time to explain that well. And I don't always take the time in part because I don't know. Like, I don't know yeah, which medications right. should you take with mm -hmm. food, which should you not take with food. So then we also make other assumptions too, Hobie. Like, we assume that the language we're conversing in is the best language for this person. What if the person's primary language is not the one you're speaking? Yep. Does the prescription need to be written or explained in their mother tongue? Mm hmm does the patient have low health literacy? Do they perceive some medications to be less important and don't take them as often, perhaps because they can't afford all of their medications? Does the patient have access to a pharmacy? Like if you send off the electronic one or I give them the paper, like how soon are they able to get to the pharmacy and get that filled? Can they keep track of their refills? Because that is not as easy as you would like yes. to think it is. Yes. It's nearly impossible to keep track of what you're taking and when it should be refilled. Yeah, I have a friend who has hypothyroidism and takes levothyroxine. And she went six weeks without her medications because she could just not find a time to refill her med. I mean, she's a very busy professional. She's got jobs. She's got a family. And she's running around. She just ran out and she just said, okay, I got to refill it. I got to refill it. But she kept forgetting and she didn't have time to get to the pharmacy. And obviously she's feeling terrible, but yeah. she just was just, she couldn't get herself to get there. And, oh and you don't really make it easy for patients to do that. So I think patients need more education, especially around the differences of what to expect. So why take an antihypertensive when you don't, quote unquote, feel any different when you take the medicine, right? Why continue an antidepressant when after two weeks, if you don't feel any improvement? Also, I think some patients worry about side effects, particularly when they read that package insert, which lists like every side effect known to man. Oh. And so that leads them to get scared. Even if they're not experiencing those side effects, I've had patients either stop the medicine or decrease the dose because they're worried about that. And so I think we should also remember that certain conditions like depression impact adherence, right? And patients who are very depressed may have trouble taking the very medication 
which we know will help them not feel as depressed. Yeah, so true, so true. And I want to just go back to cost again, because that's something that's really important to consider for patients who are uninsured or underinsured. If we prescribe meds that are expensive that they cannot afford, they'll stop filling it or they'll take their meds differently, like by splitting their pills or taking them every other day to stretch out their meds. And like when we see that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're taking this medication every second day. Oh, your body doesn't need to feel like your blood pressure plummets every second day. Like, no wonder you feel awful. (laughs) I know. It's like the most shocking thing to us, right? When a patient says, well, I was running out. I wasn't quite sure. So I just started taking them every other day. And another thing we need to consider, too, is that our patients may be taking complementary or alternative meds, which they think they can substitute for the medications that we've prescribed. Yeah, so this was a really great reminder to me and not something that I traditionally thought about was that patients, you may say, well, you need to take this antidepressant or antihypertensive or medicine for diabetes or whatever chronic disease. And the patient may say, well, I don't want that or I don't believe that will help me. And they'll just naturally substitute something from a complementary and alternative medicine sphere, and they may not tell you, right? Or they may feel reluctant to tell you because you say, oh, well, my doctor won't approve. And so I think that's a good comment to make is to ask patients about that and whether they may be substituting or changing their medication regimen based on other things that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely need to ask about that. So we've talked about a lot of the perils of medication adherence. So what can we do to help our patients? Well, thankfully, the FDA has a few tips that they recommend we share with our patients. So there's six of them. One. They say take your medications at the same time every day. Two. Tie it to a daily routine like brushing your teeth. Hopefully people are brushing their teeth at least once a day. (laughs) Hopefully. Three. Set up a separate calendar to track your medication adherence, be it a physical one or a digital one. Four. Use a pill container. And some of these containers can split it up by time of day, like morning, afternoon, evening, and bedtime. Five. Consider timer caps for med bottles that can alarm when it's time to take your next dose. Oh my gosh, somebody's already done this and marketed it. My retirement plan is gone. Shoot. (laughs) Six. When traveling, put your meds in your carry-on bags and bring extra doses just in case. You know, I would say the pill container idea is particularly really helpful. And in the past, I'll say I've worked in clinics where we would have patients come in because we knew medication adherence was particularly tricky for them, literally our medical assistants would fill their pill case because we would say, okay, like they were having, they were such low health literacy, they couldn't understand what medicines for what, how often they need to take it. So they would just literally come every week. And as part of their appointment, we would open up all their pill container and we literally would fill each one for them and say, you're all set for this week. And uh, that was the level by which we were trying to help some of these patients because literally they were saying, well, I don't know. I just open a bottle, take one of the blue ones and two of the red ones and three of the green ones. I said, (laughs) do you even know what those medicines are for? Or do you know if that's the right dose? He's like, no. I was like, okay, this is a big problem. We're going to have to do a lot to support you to be successful, right? And so I, I think there are things that can help patients. Yeah. And one of the things a lot of our pharmacies will offer is a blister packing service Mm, where your meds come come already pre-divided for you. That does cost extra. So the cost should be considered, but it's a a wonderful resource for those who can afford it. So let's talk about pharmacists, because I think encouraging patients to talk with their pharmacist when filling medications is an amazing idea. Pharmacists can engage in medication therapy management, which allows pharmacists to actively manage a patient's medicines. And they are a wealth of knowledge. And I know like they are always wanting to provide patient education, but I think a lot of times when patients fill their medication, they always kind of decline to talk to the pharmacist and they're not 
taking the opportunity to be educated to the full capacity that a pharmacist can offer. Yes, yeah. And I think this varies depending on which pharmacy and which pharmacist people interact with. But it's such an excellent point because our pharmacists probably know more about these medications than we do. But sometimes when I'm concerned that a patient may not understand the dosing or the technique, I will actually write pharmacists, please review the dosing or the technique just to make sure there's that extra layer of making sure the patient knows what's actually going on. Because working as a team with a patient's pharmacist is really the best way to help the patient. Another thing actually we have not mentioned thus far, Hobie, is we need to take care in how we interact with our patients about the issues of adherence because we do not want to blame them or shame them because it's very rarely a deliberate decision to not take the medications that we've prescribed. That's a great point. I think that brings us back to the idea of compliance versus adherence, right? We are doing this because we have physician-patient shared goals, right? We're trying to promote self-efficacy. We're trying to help patients develop an internal locus of control. They have agency over their own chronic disease management, including the medications they take. And so I think when we view things from that angle and perspective, we want patients to own their disease, own their medication therapy plan, and be actively engaged in making sure that they're adherent. And lastly, there's one more thing. It's actually a huge thing that I think we can do to help with adherence, and that is deprescribing, simplifying a patient's medication regimen. What meds can we stop? What meds can we combine into one pill? What meds can be changed to a long-acting version so they can be taken less frequently? Those steps addressing these issues will help with adherence. That's an awesome point. I would say one of the things that I constantly, when I see a patient who has polypharmacy issues, I immediately start going through their med list thinking, what can I stop? What do they do not need to take? How do I make this simpler for the patient? Because I would just argue, and I think there's data to support after two or three number of pills, that the compliance naturally goes down because once you have five, six, seven, eight different medications, it's impossible to take those correctly. The data would say that you need about 80% adherence to kind of get efficacy for any single drug. So you don't need to be 100% adherent, but you do need to reach a minimum threshold for the drug to be effective. And I don't know, I just look at these patients who have 15 or 16 medications on their list and I think, how can you possibly take all these medications correctly? Like it's a full-time job just trying to manage that. Yeah, I agree, Hobie. Most people do not have the time or the energy that it would take to uh, successfully adhere to a multi-drug regimen. So it definitely behooves us to make it as easy as possible for our patients and to set them up for success. I think it it comes back to the patient-physician communication and working together. And so uh, I'll be honest, it makes me think I got to call a few patients back and schedule them (laughs) so that we can talk about medication adherence. And uh, it makes me think there are quite a few patients I've seen recently where I just I assumed that they were taking their medications as I had prescribed them. And I kind of need to talk to them and say, let's take one step back and talk to me about your medications and if you feel like they're really the right choice for you and if you're taking them like we talked about. Yeah, we need to take the humility pill as a physician sometimes and uh, make sure we're doing right by our patients when it comes to their medications. Thank you so much for bringing up this important topic, Hobie. I've enjoyed chatting with you about it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'll talk to you next month. Sounds good. Take care. cardiac arrest and our building just lost power all right give me jumper cables rubber gloves 3,000 grams of soul medrol stack what are you macgyver no 
I'm the Generalist. Greetings all, it's Vanessa Cardi here welcoming you back to The Generalist. And today I am joined by Australian doctor extraordinaire, Dr. Casey Parker. Casey is back to chat about how we can bring poker skills into our GP offices. G'day, Vanessa. It's great to be back with you on the show, and I'm really looking forward to talking nerdy about some more sonography. It's, it's time to talk a little nerdy. All right, so let's discuss a case. Your next patient is a 10-year-old boy who has impressively swollen left cervical lymph nodes. He did recently have an infected boil just behind the ear, which seemed to settle after it spontaneously drained onto his pillow. So lovely. But now his parents are concerned because he has a tender, painful lump, which has expanded rapidly over a few days, and he seems to now have a fever. Clinically, he has a clear mass, which feels like a firm, tender lymph node in the posterior triangle of his neck. The previous boil seems to have indeed resolved and is now just a healing, crusty sore. So you ask yourself, is this a simple reactive lymph node? Or is this something that's going to either need antibiotics or maybe incision and drainage to cure it? Yeah, so this is bread and butter for us primary care doctors, Vanessa. We treat these cases all the time, and we know the majority of these will settle with either a bit of watching weight therapy or a short course of oral antibiotics. However, in sicker-looking kids, we need to be sure that this is not something nasty such as an abscess. And in that group of patients in which the lymphadenopathy just doesn't settle, we of course are going to worry that we're missing something horrible like a lymphoma or metastatic disease. So, brings us to the question of the hour, can ultrasound help us make this diagnosis? Lymph nodes are generally superficial and fairly easily accessible to an ultrasound. So how can we use ultrasound to plan our next move for this sort of case? Yeah, so the lymph nodes that are in the neck, the axilla, and the inguinal area are all really easy to see with ultrasound. We can also see some of the deeper nodes which are in the abdomen and the retroperitoneum. However, these are a bit tougher to interpret and a bit tougher to get pictures of. So let's focus on the superficial groups, which come up a lot in primary care. Okay, so let's start off by giving ourselves a little grounding. What does a normal lymph node look like on ultrasound? Yeah, lymph nodes look a little bit like miniature kidneys. They are generally bean-shaped, they have a smooth round convex side, and a central hilum on the inside. Usually they are in small clusters and usually they're found in the blood vessels around any particular region. They generally appear hypoechoic, that is to say that they're usually darker than the surrounding fat and muscle tissue, but they're not as dark as the blood vessels, not completely pitch black. The central hilum of the lymph node contains a little bit of fat which is brighter than the rest of the lymph node. And if you look closely, each lymph node has little blood vessels that enter in through the hilum and then branch out just like the kidney. These vessels are often visible when you apply color Doppler to look at lymph nodes. So how big is a normal lymph node? What we normally say is that less than two centimeters is okay, with a depth of less than one centimeter. So it's important to know that pathological lymph nodes tend to be larger and rounder, and they lose that nice two to one length to depth ratio. Okay, so if you're looking at a normal scan, or a scan of normal lymph nodes, you would expect to see small groups of dark bean-shaped nodes that have a brighter center and possibly some branching vessels from the hilum. So in this case of a kid with a recent skin infection, I am assuming we would expect to see some reactive adenitis. And what would that look like? Yeah, so reactive lymph nodes tend to look really just like normal lymph nodes, but they may be a little bit bigger and they tend to have an increase in blood flow compared to other lymph nodes around the body. Often there is a cluster, and they can feel a bit like a larger mass, but when you look on the ultrasound, you can actually see each one is a discrete 
lymph node and you've got a small cluster all pushed together. They do tend to look quite normal in architecture. They've got that nice normal branching pattern of the blood vessels. So they look like large normal lymph nodes. So a little clump of jelly beans, normal happy jelly beans. Okay. Exactly. And if this was something more serious, like an abscess, then what would we expect to see on ultrasound? Yeah, so suppurative adenitis starts to show a bit of loss of that normal healthy architecture. The nodes lose that nice central bright fat-filled hilum, and you might see some hypoechoic dark fluid within the centre. And also you might start to see the destruction of that normal branching pattern so those vessels can be disrupted. There may be an increase in blood flow and even a little halo of dark fluid around the lymph node as that local inflammation and fluid accumulates. So we do know that separative nodes can then evolve into an abscess. So what would that look like if we're putting the probe on the kid's neck? Yeah, so we tend to see this a lot, mainly in the groin, but they can also occur in the neck. They can occur anywhere, to be honest. Lymph nodes that get destroyed as the bacteria release all those digestive enzymes are usually quite large with a liquefied dark center. You might even see some debris floating around within the middle of the lymph node. And if you push gently on it with the probe, you may even see that swirling around. And that's a delightful image that we call pustulosis. So swirling pus within something is a sign of an abscess. That's such a lovely image. (laughs) Such a lovely word. All right, so small abscesses, as we know, might resolve with antibiotics, but some are probably going to need some drainage. So those are going to need to be referred on or followed very closely. Yeah, that's right. Larger abscesses really do need an operation. We know that antibiotics just don't cut it here. And our surgical friends need to sort this out in the operating theatre usually. Okay, so that covers those acute swollen nodes. Now let's talk about a more chronic situation. You know, that situation when the patient has a known malignancy and you're worried that these nodes are metastatic, or in the case where the nodes are not going away like you would expect after a few weeks, and you have a concern for a lymphoma or another malignancy. Can ultrasound help in these situations? Yes, it can, Vanessa. So malignant lymphadenopathy has a very different appearance to what we've just described with reactive or infected nodes. Malignant nodes tend to be quite large, and they tend to grow very slowly. They also tend to be quite rounded. They look more circular rather than that oval or jelly bean shape. And they tend to be very dark, quite hypoechoic relative to normal looking lymph nodes. Now, you may see the loss of the normal architecture within the branching pattern of the vessels. But one of the key features to look for with malignant lymph nodes is the presence of peripheral vessels. And if you put on color Doppler, these nodes are tumors. So they tend to grow new vessels through the cortex into the peripheral tissue. So if you see vessels around the lymph node, then that is definitely abnormal. Okay, so in summary, larger rounded nodes with weird peripheral vessels may represent malignant lymphadenopathy. These are usually going to need to undergo a fine needle aspiration for cytology or a more formal biopsy to see what's really going on. Now, are there any other diseases we can see when we're looking at lymph nodes? Well, there are a few, Vanessa. Do you remember what cervical tuberculosis is called? Oh, this is one of my favorite words. Oh, yes, scrofula, which is such a fantastic sort of Middle Ages sounding word. Yeah, so TB can produce chronic lymph nodes as well, which are usually also very large, often very dark, with internal echoes. They look a little bit like reactive lymph nodes, but they often form a large, matted mass of lymph nodes. TB tends to calcify over time as well, so you may see some bright hyperechoic lesions within the lymph nodes, and they often have a room of fluid around them. But having said that, they usually do maintain their normal hylovascular branching pattern, 
and they tend not to have the peripheral vessels that we might see in malignant lymph nodes. And in reality, this diagnosis is probably going to be really mainly clinical, and knowing the patient's history and risk factors are obviously going to come into play here. But still, a fine needle aspiration is going to be required to confirm the diagnosis and, of course, exclude other tumors. Yeah, absolutely. So in summary, I'd say that benign reactive lymph nodes are very common. If you're a bedding doctor, that's usually what you're going to be seeing in private practice. They look like normal lymph nodes, but they're a little bit larger and usually tender. And there may be some local infection or inflammatory process going on, which you can see with your own eyes. And the separative lymph nodes, they start to lose their central architecture and they can evolve into abscesses. So you're going to look for the liquefied center with mobile debris. That's it. And malignant lymph nodes tend to be large and usually rounder. They're usually not tender and they distinguish by the presence of peripheral blood vessels. And tuberculosis or other granulomatous diseases are usually going to have large, dark nodes with normal vessel patterns, though there might be some calcification in them over time and they might be somewhat matted together. That's right. We primary care docs, we usually know what our patient's history is and what the risk factors are for many of these diseases. So use your GP super skills to help you decide who needs close follow-up or who needs more investigation. That's it. Yeah, exactly. And if in doubt, of course, look at the whole patient. Look for other signs of TB or malignancy or other scary underlying processes. And if you're concerned, obviously refer them on, get a biopsy and uh, try and figure out what else might be going on here. Thank you so much, Casey. And uh, hopefully more and more of us will be bringing poker skills into the office. Cool. See you later. have a burning question for you, Penny Wilson. Why is it important to discuss contraception with patients who've just had a baby? Many women tell me that their chosen birth control method after having a baby is never having sex again. But I tell you, that is lies. <laughs> it is, it is. In fact, uh, the research shows that about 50% of patients are having unprotected intercourse before their six-week postpartum visit. So this is an important conversation to have because in the US, 70% of pregnancies that happen in the year after birth are unintended. And there is a lot of misunderstanding about fertility after birth. And having another pregnancy soon after delivery, which results in a short birth interval, is not as optimal for maternal or newborn health either. That's right. Ideally, there would be a 12-month gap between the birth of one baby and the conception of the next. There are a few different factors to consider when choosing contraception in this group. Yeah, so we want to know if they're breastfeeding or not. We want to look at considerations around the timing of contraception, so whether they want a delayed contraception option or immediate postpartum. And we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. How about lactational amenorrhea? Is this effective? A lot of people seem to think it is, but is it really? So it's certainly true that fertility is decreased when new mums are breastfeeding, but like any contraceptive method, it's not 100%, and it requires a certain set of conditions to be optimally effective. So it requires exclusive, frequent breastfeeding. There must be no longer than four-hour gaps during the day or six-hour overnight. They must be amenorrheic, so if they've started having their periods again, it's not working. But having said that, it is thought to be reliable up to about six months postpartum, but not really beyond that. So the consensus is that if all those criteria are met, i.e. perfect use, efficacy is around 98%, which is pretty good, but not quite as reliable as some of the medical methods. And let's talk about these uh, medication options. 
So the first line are the larks, the long-acting reversible contraception, of course, because we love our larks. So progestin-only methods can be started immediately postpartum. You don't have to delay. And they don't impact on breastfeeding or lactation. So if you're going to use a depot injection or a subdermal implant, they can be started whenever, even before discharge from the hospital. And there's also various options that we have in terms of IUD insertion as well. And there's quite a bit of difference of opinion here, Penny, about the timing of the IUD insertion in the postpartum patient. Like some say, oh, right away. Some say, wait six weeks. What, uh, what does the evidence tell us? So you can actually insert an IUD immediately after delivery of the placenta, i.e. within 15 minutes. And that's the case for either vaginal or cesarean births. So the way that you're going to do that is you remove the IUD from the introducer, cut the strings to 10 centimetres long, use a long-handled ring forceps to place the IUD at the fundus of the uterus, and then if you're in a cesarean situation, then you're going to poke the strings down through the cervix from the top. Now, if you're going to do this, the expulsion rates are a bit higher compared to a later insertion, but they have a less chance of accidentally falling pregnant before they get a chance to come into the clinic several weeks or months later. What is the optimal timing for IUD insertion? Yeah, so expulsion rates decrease after about four to six weeks postpartum. So the CDC lists IUD insertion as category one from four weeks after delivery. And that's either vaginal or cesarean section, i.e. that means the benefits significantly outweigh the risks from four weeks after birth. Now, a lot of providers choose not to do insertions that early because they have concerns around perforation. However, this is more anecdotal than actually evidence-based. The data around perforation risk is a bit limited. It appears to be increased up to 36 weeks postpartum. So it's not just the first six weeks, it's actually up to 36 weeks postpartum. And it's also further increased in people who are breastfeeding. Having said that, the overall risk of perforation is still low. So waiting six, eight or 12 weeks postpartum is pretty common, but from what I can see of the evidence is pretty arbitrary. So we need to balance the timing of the insertion with the risk of unintended pregnancy in the meantime. Now, can combined hormonal contraceptives, like combined oral contraceptive pill, the patch or the ring, can they be used in the postpartum period? They can, but they can't be initiated immediately. So estrogen is thought to have an impact on the establishment of breastfeeding, and it also increases the risk of venous thromboembolism in a time when VTE risk is already very high, i.e. the postpartum period. So it's recommended to delay initiation until four weeks for those with no other VTE risk factors or six weeks for those who are a little bit higher risk already for VTE. And those risk factors include people who are smoking, those with a BMI over 30, cesarean deliveries, preeclampsia, complicated deliveries, postpartum hemorrhage, etc. So we should consider delaying initiation if patients have ongoing challenges with breast milk supply as well, for that same reason that it can interrupt breast milk quantity. And we also should be discussing with patients the challenges of remembering to take a pill or change the patch or the ring at the appropriate time when their routine is totally disrupted by having a newborn and they are very sleep deprived. So as always, proper counselling around pros and cons will allow our patients to make the best choice for their own unique circumstances. 
Okay, perfect. Well, this is a, a helpful review of postpartum contraception. Thanks so much, Penny. Cool. Specialist Corner. All right, I am here today with psychiatrist Dr. Sean Hersevort, and he is currently the National Medical Director for Foresight Mental Health. And in addition to this, he has 20 years of experience in patient care, program design, and education with such illustrious institutions as UC Davis, UC Irvine, and UCSF. More near and dear to our hearts here on Right on Prime is that for the last 10 years, he spent most of his time working in the field of primary care psychiatry, educating and consulting to primary care providers. Welcome, Sean. It's so good to have you on the show. Thank you. It's been a while since I did a podcast, so I'm happy to be back. The topic we decided to cover today is major depressive disorder, which we more commonly refer to as depression. And this is a big topic, so this will be a piece in two parts. The second part will focus on management, and here we're going to look at prevalence, etiology, presentation, and evaluation. I know we both see a lot of this in our practices, but how widespread is this condition? Yeah, so it's actually the number one cause of disability and premature death in adults 18 to 44, and it is present in about 15% of primary care patients in a commercial population, in a Medi-Cal or Medicare clinic that's double or triple. Wow. Yeah, rates are as high as 30 to 50% in patients with chronic illnesses like coronary artery disease, cardiovascular, diabetes, obesity, HIV, cerebrovascular disease, which obviously is a huge percentage of our patients. Up to a quarter of adults globally will have depression at some point in their life. And most likely they're going to experience this between 12 and 25 or over 65. I'm glad you mentioned that it's really often seen in people who have comorbid conditions because it almost seems like when a person starts developing all these different chronic conditions, you know, dollars for donuts, that they're going to add depression to the list. It's really quite something to see. Eventually, and the opposite is true too. If you're depressed and anxious long enough, your cardiovascular and diabetes illnesses are going to flourish as well. Yeah, they do travel hand in hand, don't they? Hmm. Well, let's take a few minutes to talk about the causes of depression. It would be nice to think that it was just clear-cut, oh, you've got a gene that makes a certain protein and that's why you're depressed, but life in practice has told us that it's not that straightforward. Well, sometimes it is, but you're right, it generally varies quite greatly. The best way to think about it is looking at the biopsychosocial concept, where all three factors are usually at play. What I tell patients is that there's almost always a biological and a psychological component. And that biological, like you said, can be genetic, hormonal, acute or chronic illness, chronic pain, etc. And the psychological is going to relate to what life experiences they've had, what's happened to them historically and recently, and how they reacted to it. Now, a factor that we didn't used to pay enough attention to, and we are more so now, is the social component, which acts as a modifier. If you have immense adverse childhood experiences, negative ACEs, that's going to make things a lot harder for you at all ages. And on the flip side, somebody who really just demonstrates strong resilience can really do better faster. Yeah, okay. And I'm glad you mentioned the social component because in primary care, we see firsthand the impact of those social determinants of health. Like it's hard to look after your mental health if you're struggling on a daily basis for food and for education and shelter. Absolutely. 
Now, I was hoping we could go over some of the presentations of depression, because this is not a cookie-cutter disease. People come in needing help with their mental health, presenting quite differently. Very true. Just as you could probably tell me that every patient with hypertension and diabetes presents a little differently, I'll tell you the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. So by definition, all people have to experience either loss of pleasure or depressed mood. Everybody has those. The most common presentation includes prominent anxiety and insomnia. Sometimes we call that anxious or stimulated depression. There's also what we call atypical or lethargic depression, which presents with low energy, hypersomnia, and increased appetite. And then there's a third type that we don't see as frequently, but is worthy to discuss, which is melancholic depression. And that's a very severe form of depression, including severe loss of pleasure, guilt, anorexia, insomnia, that is quite grave and usually requires an escalation of care. There are other aspects of all depressions that you will see, such as irritability and enhanced experiences of negative emotions and sensations like pain. So anxious and depressed people feel more pain and they feel it more intensely. Hmm, interesting. It's not as much that the depression is causing the pain as the depression is causing them to interpret things more so as pain. Well, I think about it as an amplifier. If we treat the depression, the volume on your pain, let's say, would just turn down a little bit. Yeah, which is what we often see when people have comorbid depression and fibromyalgia or other pain syndromes. Getting that depression under control certainly can help. You got it. Let's look at the DSM-5 for a moment. This is really the kind of the gold standard for diagnosis. What do they say specifically about depression? So although everyone, like we said, experiences depression differently, they all follow a somewhat predictable pattern. So the DSM, or DSM-5, where we are now, demonstrates that you need two or more weeks of symptoms, including at least five of nine, think half, of good old SIG caps, you know, sleep, interest, guilt, energy, concentration, appetite, psychomotor, and suicidality. And we can use the DSM-5, but you really have to factor it through real life. You need to see that the patients are clearly suffering and that it's interfering with their function. Without those, it's really just sadness. Hmm. And I would say that duration of two weeks or more would surprise many people. I know by the time my patients are coming to see me about depressive symptoms, it's certainly been more than two weeks. Yeah, really. I mean... At two weeks, we note that there's something serious going on. The reality is that people can sustain a depression for 6, 12, 18 months, even years. Now, if we're wondering about depression, but our patients haven't specifically said they're coming in because of their mood, are there different screening tools that we could use to help? Absolutely. The main sort of meat and potatoes is the PHQ-9 for depression and the GAD-7 for anxiety because they're so tightly tied together. You know, the PHQ-9 is really my best friend in primary care, and it gets the job done beautifully all the way from 12 years old up to 100 years old. That being said, some folks would prefer something a little more tailored to their patient population. So we have wonderful accessory tools. We have the PHQ-9 adapted for teens, the EDPS, the Edinburgh for peripartum depression, the GDS, geriatric for over 65, and a wonderful tool that's very underutilized called the DMI, Depression in the Medically Ill, for patients with chronic medical illnesses. 
Now, these screening tools, can they be used to monitor therapy as well? Like, can you diagnose a patient, get them started on treatment, and then redo the screening tool? Absolutely. Everything that I listed can be used both for diagnosis and for following treatment. That's not always true, but most of the scales that I use are usable for both. Okay. And would your practice be to redo the scale at each visit? Depends on the frequency of visit. Yeah. I will tend to do them about every other visit unless I'm trying to make a medication decision. And then I like to bring them in as sort of one more piece of information. Mm, Okay. Good to know. Now, we spoke earlier about how depression often accompanies physical illness, but we know we often see it in a cluster of other mental health conditions. Yeah, unfortunately, like our medical health conditions, depression rarely travels by itself. But anxiety, insomnia, and substance abuse are very frequent hangers-on. Depression tends to be sort of a common pathway for most mental and medical illnesses, for that matter. Patients who suffer with obsessive-compulsive disorder, PTSD, ADHD, eating disorders, or virtually anything else will virtually always end up depressed. I'm going to put you a bit on the spot here, but do you sometimes see mood disorder or depression as a harbinger to dementia? I'm asking that because I can think of about five patients in the last 10 years who developed depression, which was managed, and then Mm -hmm. a couple of years later went on to develop dementia. So it's a great question, and it's a big part of our primary care psychiatry work. So depression in its true form often comes in the elderly, like we mentioned, and is a harbinger to actual dementia. Mm -hmm. It's one of the first symptoms we see preceding actual neurocognitive decline. But the flip side is that there are times when it's what we call pseudo-dementia. They look depressed. They're starting to look like they're having neurocognitive decline. You treat the depression, and the neurocognitive decline actually pauses and reverses. So the nice thing is we don't have to do anything differently. We recognize symptoms of depression. We treat them. But the nice thing is some of the time we're wrong about the dementia, and we won't need to proceed with that treatment. What sort of an evaluation do we need to do beyond making the diagnosis? Sure, and this is every day for every one of us in either psychiatry or primary care. So. Mm-hmm. The way you want to think about it is really the two simple arms, medical and then mental. So the medical list is far too long to go into. could mostly be identified by a CBC, a CMP, a UTOX, and a TSH. That's going to catch 90, 95% of the medical causes. Mentally, think AMPS. We use this when we teach our courses, so A-M-P-S. A. Anxiety. M. Mood, including bipolar. P. Psychosis. S. And substance use. So of all of those, they're all pretty self-evident except bipolar, which is always the trickiest for you and for us in psychiatry. Bipolar 1, not so much. Weeks (laughs) of unlimited energy, euphoria or rage, dangerousness, psychosis, hospitalization, arrest. We all pretty much catch bipolar 1. But it's the bipolar 2 that's really subtle, with a little bit of elevated mood, energy, activity, depression, or rather uh, suppressed sleep. So my best advice for those, um, unless you are an expert in bipolar 2, would be to confirm a bipolar 1 with an MDQ, a mood disorders questionnaire, and for bipolar 2, the BSDS. 
the bipolar spectrum disorder scale is a godsend. Now, in reference to your question before, these are diagnostic only. And if you're just still not sure, refer. Okay, good to know. I had not heard of the BSDS. That would be very helpful rather than asking those questions like, so have you ever had a lot of energy, but maybe not too much energy? Because some of those questions for bipolar 2 just seem far more difficult to tease out. Absolutely. And this is why I really love assessment tools, rating scales, because in that moment, they make everyone a DSM-5 expert. <laughs> it's true. Bye-bye imposter syndrome. I'm now a DSM-5 expert. <laughs> Okay, so this is a good place to put a pause on this discussion with Sean Hersabort about depression. We've established that it's very common, that its presentation does vary, that the cause can be quite multifactorial, and that it can exacerbate other conditions. I invite you to join us for part two, where Sean reviews management, because as we know, even though the diagnosis can sometimes be tricky, management is even more nuanced. Pendium Spotlight, Urgent Care Edition. I'm joined by Evie Marcolini, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Neurocritical Care at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. And we're going to be discussing the chapter that Evie is a section editor for in our Corpendium monthly review. This is a chapter called Vertigo and Dizziness. And as our UC Max listener knows, you have access to all of this this entire fantastic online, frequently updated textbook, as well as all the other great things with UC Max. So, Evie, thank you so much for joining. And I'm really excited to discuss because dizziness to me feels neither quick nor easy. Thanks, Mike, for having me. I'm really excited about being on this new program. Well, you know, your expertise as being double boarded not only in emergency medicine, but also neurocritical care makes you the perfect person for this exploration. And before we really get into this urgent care bedside evaluation, just a couple bird's eye types of things. First is that dizziness, at least in the emergency department, is one of our more frequent visits. And as we know, can be all different kinds of things from a cardiac arrhythmia to volume loss from vomiting or diarrhea, or perhaps you just finished a marathon, or could be something concerning like a posterior circulation stroke. So all of these things in the past, we've very much tried to differentiate in asking our patient. And I tell you, just in my own practice of medicine, over 100,000 patients, over 28 years of emergency medicine practice, I have found myself so frequently, <laughs> as I'm sure you have too, at the bedside, I was like, okay, is it vertigo or lightheadedness? You know, vertigo, like when the room is spinning, or lightheadedness when you stand up too fast. And you know, it's so frequent that patients aren't able to differentiate between those. I'm sure you have had that in your experience, but also you have some literature that supports the difficulty we have in getting a patient to differentiate between these two entities. I am so lightheaded. You're so right. The, we, I think we were all taught to differentiate. Is it room spinning or lightheadedness? And as it turns out, number one, it's not a good discriminator. It doesn't help us with the next step of our workup. And number two, patients don't really understand that question and they'll answer you. But this was studied in, in patients who were asked about the quality of their dizziness. 
when they went back and asked them the same questions 10 minutes later, 50% of patients changed their answers. So we don't have to perseverate over that anymore. This is a new era and we are going to embrace Dizzy. I know that dizzy patients are the bane of our existence in urgent care, emergency medicine, everywhere. And part of the reason is patients are terrible at describing the symptoms and at describing what's going on. And the differential is so wide and so broad. And people typically hate picking up the dizzy patient. But I think it's kind of fun. And there's a way to do this that simplifies it and makes it easier to separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were. Well, we're going to make that wheat-chaff separation. I know what wheat is. I'm not sure I know what chaff is, but that's for another podcast, I think. And I would say that those students through my whole career that I've browbeat because I walk in the room and get a different story, now I know, <laughs> I'm just kidding about this, of course, but that the student probably got the right story, told me the story that they got, and I know they're always so embarrassed when like they walk out of the room and they're like, the patient told me that they had vertigo and you got lightheadedness, you know? So for our residents and students, we can say, hey, look, you know, you've been right all along. And you can read the chapter for more information on all this and even deeper dive than we're going to give on this podcast. But what you really do in this chapter is a fantastic job of breaking things down. Step one. Step one is really going to say, do I have a medical cause that I've been able to easily identify for this patient's dizziness. And again, just dizziness, not lightheadedness or vertigo or disequilibrium or a central cause or imbalance, et cetera, but just dizziness. And sometimes you have a very easily identifiable source. They've had vomiting and diarrhea for four days and their three kids have the same symptoms. Every time they stand up, they get dizzy. It's like, I'm not going to be going into some of those other things because I have a good explanation for that. Other things that could fall within that categorization could be a high risk of a cardiac dysrhythmia, just for example, or maybe they have a past history and they have identical symptoms and they just want some relief from it. But once I've sort of moved past that point and I don't find a easily discoverable medical cause of their dizziness, what you recommend is putting people into three main categories. So I'm just going to say the three categories now, and then we'll go into each of those a little bit greater detail. Step two, categories of dizziness. One, triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. So TEVS, emphasis on the word episodic. Two, secondly, spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome. Three, and then finally, acute vestibular syndrome. And that, just as a broad category, could be that sort of constant dizziness that could be attributable to something like a posterior circulation stroke. So let's start at the first one, the triggered episodic vestibular syndrome, TEVS. Tell us what this is and what can cause it. So Mike, I, I want to build on something that you were saying earlier, and that is that much of the differential, many of the patients who come in with dizzy are going to be general medical problems. But we should just recognize that most of them are going to have a medical diagnosis, like you said. 50% of them will have an underlying medical diagnosis. 30% are going to have a peripheral problem, like vestibular neuritis. But the thing that we don't want to miss is the central process, which is the stroke or a TIA. 
And that's important. And that's why we focus on this. That's, that's why dizzy is important. So just to, to reemphasize that it's a big bucket of patients. And the reason that we're focusing on it so critically with this way to look at it is because it's so important not to miss that posterior circulation stroke. Triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. We'll start with the triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. This is, as you said, it's episodic. It comes and goes. And it's triggered usually by movement. It can last for seconds to minutes, but it's worse with movement. So the classic case is BPPV, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. And in this patient, they'll have dizziness. We're just going to call it dizziness because it could be dizziness, it could be nausea, it could be vertigo, whatever you want to call it. We're gonna, well, for the sake of this conversation, let's call it dizziness. So they have dizziness that's worse when they're sitting up and it resolves when they're lying down. That's classic BPPV. You can also have somebody who comes in and says, this has been going on for a week and it's worse when I'm sitting up, it's a little better when I'm lying down. It's important to tease that out, and we'll see later why when we talk about the acute vestibular syndrome, because if it's there when they're sitting up and they've had it going on for a week, then even when they lie down, they're not going to feel great. They're going to feel crummy because maybe they've had nausea and vomiting, they haven't been eating, they're dehydrated. So you have to focus on what's the symptom and when does it happen? So BPPV is a classic positional. Now, these patients can also have orthostatic hypotension. And I want to make a commercial here for not relying on orthostatic vital signs, maybe not even doing them because A, they're really time consuming to do and most people don't do it correctly. It takes a lot. And, and B, even if you do it correctly, the only orthostatic vital signs that are worth their weight are a heart rate that increases by greater than 30. That's pretty significant. And I guarantee if you take a patient from lying to sitting and they have orthostatic hypotension, they're going to feel dizzy when they sit up. If you ask them to stand, they're going to feel dizzy. So I look for orthostatic symptoms and that sends me down the pathway of what medical thing is going on here. I love your thought on the orthostatic blood pressure and pulse. And I love it for several reasons. <laughs> One, because it doesn't work. And the second, because it takes a lot of time and it's time that's wasted. And finally, because the fact that it can lead us astray, can cause a false positive test. And we know that when you look at patients in the waiting room that are there for totally unrelated complaints, like ankle sprain, for example, a significant number of them will have positive orthostatics. And with patients who have dehydration, I'm not talking about you lost 50% of your blood volume because those will probably all be positive, right? But in those patients, they're not reliable or I should say lack of orthostatic changes is not a reliable indicator of hypovolemia with that mild to moderate hypovolemia. Anyone that wants to learn more about this, if you check out first10em, like first and then the number 10, then em.com, that's Justin Morgenstern's blog. They have in 2019, a really extensive literature review. And <laughs> you can tell by the title, orthostatic vital signs don't help. So <laughs> you can tell the answer they're going to come up with from the title. But yeah, I haven't done orthostatic vital signs in my career in at least the last 20 years. I've not ordered that test to be done. So I would say for all of us, make it easy on ourselves, make it easy on the staff, 
make it easier on the patients. Just don't do these tests. Yeah, Mike, that's just one other reason why the nurses love you, (laughs) is you don't ask them to do useless tests. (laughs) And my jokes. Right. So just to wrap up this, triggered episodic vestibular syndrome is intermittent and it's triggered by something, usually movement. So that is our first TEVS, triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. Acute vestibular syndrome. On the far end of the spectrum is acute vestibular syndrome. So to me, as far as a bird's eye view... This is characterized by dizziness, and again, not as important to differentiate vertiginous, lightheadedness, disequilibrium, imbalance, etc., but dizziness that is more of a constant dizziness. So acute vestibular syndrome contrasted with the TEVS, the triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. Tell us about acute vestibular syndrome. The acute vestibular syndrome is either going to be a central cause, like a posterior circulation stroke, or something peripheral, like a vestibular neuritis. Mm-hmm. If it's a posterior circulation stroke, you think about the physiology. There was a point in time when the embolus traveled and got lodged in the artery, and that's when the symptoms started. And those symptoms are not going to come and go. They're going to be persistent. That's the most important thing in differentiating the acute vestibular syndrome from the triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. And sometimes it's hard to flesh this out because the patient's not going to be a great historian. So the keys to this is asking them when it started, trying to get to that, asking them what the progress has been. And if it's something that's worsened with position, that's okay. It can still be acute vestibular syndrome, but in acute vestibular syndrome, it never goes away. Before we even go to the third category here, Just contrast these again, because I think this is going to be fairly new terminology for a lot of our listeners. So the triggered episodic vestibular syndrome, the classic case, the patient wakes up, they feel fine, they roll over, have a sudden onset of room spinning feeling, i.e. of dizziness, and it's worse when they turn their head, it's intermittent, and it is all of those things that you talked about, benign, paroxysmal, it's positional, vertigo, right? So that could be one possibility for it, that BPPV. I have to tell you, you know, HIPAA disclaimer on myself, I have had that. It's not great, that's for sure. And we could talk then about like the modified somersault technique or the epilene maneuver that might improve that. But it's a benign type of vertigo or dizziness. And by benign, we don't mean that it doesn't cause significant symptoms, but just that it isn't going to kill you in the same way as something like a posterior circulation stroke. So that constant dizziness is going to be the thing that makes us more concerned about a posterior circulation stroke. So let's move to the third of these. And this is like all in medicine, right? It can never be easy. (laughs) This is that middle ground stuff. It's like the way patients always present to us, not like the textbook, but they challenge us a little bit in our jobs. And that's fine. You know, we are urgent care clinicians, so we're up for a bit of a challenge, right? Don't want too much, but a bit. And this is not the triggered episodic vestibular syndrome, the TEVS, This is not the acute vestibular syndrome, that constant syndrome, but this is spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome. Spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome. Yeah, this is all about the story. This is something that happens, it starts and it stops without a trigger such as movement. So the classic case is somebody who says, I was in the grocery store and all of a sudden I became dizzy and lightheaded. I had palpitations. I became sweaty. I had to sit down because I was so unsteady. 
And by the time somebody noticed and they called EMS, by the time EMS got there, it had passed, completely passed. Now I have no symptoms whatsoever. That sounds like a panic attack, doesn't it? And that's an example of a spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome. There's nothing that triggered it. It happens, it comes, it goes. And by the time you see them, it's a story. And that's where we're focusing is on the story. And when you talk to these folks, you're trying to say, hmm, well, could it have been a panic attack? Could it have been Meniere's? Could it have been a vasovagal episode? The person who gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and has a vasovagal episode. The real difference of our first category, the triggered episodic vestibular syndrome, which is something that happens just, for example, when you turn your head, there's a trigger to it, as opposed to the spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome, when it just happens, it just sort of comes out of nowhere and you're going about your day, living your life, and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, I am so dizzy and I don't have what we always talk about and I frequently talk about and all of us in medicine do, we don't have a good alternative reason for that, which is something that makes us more concerned. So the things that you put in the differential there Panic attack, you're not going to die from it. So important to know about. 25-year-old who's had multiple panic attacks in the past, maybe more likely. (laughs) The 60-year-old who hasn't had panic attacks but has cardiovascular risk factors, probably don't diagnose that (laughs) at that time in the urgent care, right? In that age demographic patient. On the other hand, thinking about things like TIA or a vasovagal episode, all that's going to be something that we need to just get additional data points to gather additional history as far as risk stratifying this patient. At the bedside of the urgent care, is this something that we have a pretty good confidence that it's benign, or at least good confidence that it's not something more serious that needs to be emergently diagnosed, and we can manage the patient as an outpatient or something that they would need to be transferred for? So certainly, the acute vestibular syndrome, oftentimes, especially concerned about posterior stroke, we want to transfer that patient Hopefully, we're not transferring patients. We have a good likelihood for BPPV. On the other hand, the spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome is one that we just want to make sure we get additional information as far as a decision on if and how that patient needs transported. Yes, and I like the way that this is set up because it makes it so, I'm not going to say it makes it so easy, but it makes such an organized way of approaching the dizzy patient. You're spending most of your time listening to the patient's story and filtering the patient's story for how you're going to put them into one of three categories, triggered episodic vestibular syndrome, spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome, or acute vestibular syndrome. So by the time you finish listening to their story, you should be saying to yourself, I think they're going to be in the triggered, the TEVS category. And then you're following up with some questions to really confirm that that's what's going on. And the beauty of this is after you've put them in one of these three categories, now you have a defined pathway of where to go with it. We're wondering about dizziness and, you know, (laughs) dizziness and numbness of your left arm and leg, or dizziness and when I turn my head, or dizziness and I just had a blood draw, vasovagal. I mean, all of those things, those data points, that additional information that we need to get is something probably why you love this, because it enables you to really practice good bedside medicine 
and make patient-centric decisions. So anyone that wants more information on this, please go to the chapter. You can read a lot more in depth. You'll see the references. And this has been a really nice discussion of what I'm guessing most people, like you said at the beginning, Evie, aren't really big fans of the, we always make that joke, the weak and dizzy 70-year-old, right? On the other hand, dizziness is something that we can oftentimes diagnose and improve patients' dizziness, improve their morbidity from, and something that we want to make sure that nothing more serious, life-threatening, emergently life-threatening is going on. So, Evie, we're going to look forward to talking to you next time. And thank you so much for your expertise. Welcome to part two of my discussion with primary care psychiatrist, Dr. Sean Hersevoort on the topic of depression. In part one, we focused on the presentation of depression and its diagnosis. And here we're getting into the meat of the matter with management. Let's turn our focus to managing depression. And I've had a few people who, when we identified the depression, say, won't this just go away on its own? Yeah. So although depression does usually run its course, it will eventually go away. It could be months or years, or in some cases, decades. So we really don't want that to be the solution. We want to facilitate and really expedite the resolution of symptoms with all our treatment factors. Lifestyle management. The bedrock of all things primary care, and certainly applies to depression as well, is lifestyle management. Absolutely. And I'm a huge proponent of this. And the concepts of health psychology, including diet, exercise, mindfulness, sleep medicine, and sobriety, can make an enormous difference, far more than many of us realize. Each on their own can play a significant part, maybe small at times, in the either prevention or treatment of depression and other mental illnesses. But together, they make a really, really serious difference. Granted, that difference can move the needle in either direction, right? So poor lifestyle, one direction, good lifestyle, the other, of course. <laughs> in the world of lifestyle factors, they're not all necessarily created equal, though. What the data suggests is that exercise and mindfulness are really powerful augmenters. And the more literature that comes out, it looks like they, we used to think they capped, but it may be that they don't really cap. Hmm. That more and more exercise and more and more mindfulness continue to add benefits no matter how far up you push them. Hmm. What specific guidance do you give your patients with regards to exercise and mindfulness? Like, are you recommending a certain exercise regime or a certain app? How do you go about bringing this up with your patients? So it, it's definitely a, a very individualized approach. I start everything with motivational interviewing, figure out why they want this, how capable they feel they are, and then find out where they are. And then just build a smart goal based on where they are and moving them on to the next step. You know, if they're doing some deep breathing once a week, I'll say, well, here's an app that can help you. Maybe move that up to just five minutes a day, and then five minutes twice a day, and then 10 minutes twice a day, and move to more sophisticated tools like walking meditation or guided visualization. So sort of step by step. And then, you know, similar for exercise. So let's say you're walking one hour once a week. Okay, well, let's just double and then triple. And maybe we can make that more likely by adding a friend or bringing your dog or making it a goal using an app like Couch to 5K and really moving towards a serious 
aggressive health regimen. I think there's a lot we can do in psychiatry that we don't do. I think you all in primary care do a better job than us, but I think we can all do even more. Mm, Yeah, so true, so true. Therapy. How should we be approaching therapy as a treatment modality for depression? As I know, some patients are always hesitant or afraid to try it. You know, it's interesting. There's really two groups. There's the group that are afraid of medicine, and then there's the group that are afraid of therapy. (laughs) It's true. It's true. In the end, they're both great tools, So, but a little different. For therapy, the mild to moderate depression responds beautifully to a CBT-based therapy. For a more severe depression, sometimes it actually takes some medication to get the patient recovered enough to really engage with the therapy. And if ever a patient is not recovering, adding either or modality is really the way to go. That meds and therapy is virtually always better than one alone. Coincidentally, in kids, therapy is probably better than meds. Hmm. And in the elderly, medications may be better than therapy. But on a general note, both are great. Hmm. Do we have any evidence yet out of the, the pandemic suggesting the effectiveness of virtual therapy or app therapy versus standard in-person therapy? Do we know anything about that yet? We do. And actually, we had data before the pandemic. Oh. We just have 50 times the data now. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And the term that is usually used is that teletherapy is non-inferior, which means it may be as good. It may not quite be as good but it's probably not a standard deviation worse. So something that's not quite as good beats the pants off nothing at all, which is really the other option during the hard pandemic. Yeah, true enough, true enough. Now, let's talk about medications. I've been doing primary care for 16 years, and no area has exploded more in its treatment options with medications more than mental health. It just feels like it's hard to stay on top of what's available and what works. You know, it's true, although I feel like things are slowing down a little bit now. Good. You know, when I started practicing psychiatry, I mean, we had all of the classes, but there were only a few. So now we've got a ton of classes and a ton of meds. So something that actually was discussed in a great book I just read, Healing by Thomas Insel, he talked about treatments being evidence-based if you choose the right one the right dose, at the right time, for the right patient. And there's nowhere that's more true than with medications. So we're going to go through the classes, because there are a few of them, and we're going to start out with the SSRIs, which are incredibly widely prescribed and, gosh darn it, really effective. They often are. Yeah. SSRIs. So there are a couple of guiding principles we can use around SSRIs, but also around all antidepressants. And they all relate to the particular medication properties, which really drill down to receptor science. So if we start with the SSRIs, they're great. They're almost always where we start. Strong, mostly tolerable, although may have the worst sex side effects of all the classes. So what I usually think about being a primary care psychiatrist is weight gain and diabetes. So unless my patient is underweight, I'm going to think about fluoxetine or sertraline, although escitalopram or citalopram are fine too. 
but only going to think about paroxetine if the patient is either underweight, looking to gain weight, or has done really quite magnificent on it in the past. What I usually do, truth be told, is I start with sertraline because it's great. It has the least interactions. It's probably the safest in pregnancy. And then I use escitalopram Lexapro as my backup. And always remember, start low and go slow. Test those waters. Make sure they're going to tolerate it. That means using, you know, a half dose of what a program like Epoxides is going to tell you for the first week or two, just to get them started. No, it's interesting. I always feel like when I review consults from our psychiatry colleagues, I feel like they might laugh at our starting doses for, let's say, escitalopram. Some of us will start a patient at five just to get it into their system. Just like, here it is. I'm going to try this for a week and check back with you. But I feel like your specialty seems to be more comfortable starting at higher doses. Yeah, well, consult docs that have worked in primary care know that tolerability is more of a problem than effect. In the hospital, you need an immediate and aggressive effect. In the primary care setting, people won't take a medication that makes them feel sick. So you have to ease them in a little bit more. Mm, Absolutely. Now, I'm just curious as to why escitalopram is your backup one after sertraline. What is it about this drug that makes it your plan B? Well, rather than say, why is it good, it really is the least problematic Mm. because paroxetine is weight-gaining Fluoxetine has a week-long half-life. You've already tried sertraline. And then citalopram, the original agent, has a black box warning for long QT over 40 milligrams, which makes it slightly more problematic. So really, sertraline, they're all great. But sertraline and escitalopram have the least obstacles to use. That's why I think they've sort of fallen into being number one and number two. I do not get any money from the makers of sertraline, but wow, that's a nice drug. And I especially appreciate the wide range of dosing options. Me too. Yeah, and you can just target different symptoms with different doses. It can be quite elegant. SNRIs. Now let's shift our attention to the SNRIs, the serotonin nor epinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Yeah, absolutely. It's a mouthful. (laughs) They are also fantastic, and they are particularly helpful for chronic pain. Now the downside is they often have a little more nausea. And they may have a little bit more discontinuation effect, a little bit more brain zaps if you stop them. On the upside, though, they may have a little bit less sex side effects in some people. Most importantly, for a patient who's failed two SSRIs, they may end up being much more effective with the addition of that noradrenergic, the norepinephrine component. And if somebody has significant chronic pain, I'm going to start here rather than with the SSRIs and often are going to get more benefit. I personally like to start with venlafaxine over duloxetine because the dosing is a little easier for me. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when it was a little easier to get authorized. At this point, really, they're both perfectly fine. And there is a third agent that nobody seems to know too much about called milnasopran or levomilnasopran. Yes. And these came out much later on the market quietly because they were already released in Europe, so came out here with less fanfare. And the reason that these are different is they're actually quite a bit more noradrenergic, which means they're more stimulating, less sedating, and less weight-gaining, which we know can be really helpful in our chronic pain patients because they may also be on 
gabapentin or other, you know, pain agents, even opioids. So a little less sedation can actually be a real godsend. Hmm. Okay. I can imagine that would be more helpful in patients with those melancholic features as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Tricyclic antidepressants. Now, how about those tricyclic antidepressants that pretty much most of us have not prescribed for depression, but use it again in chronic pain or in sleep? Do they currently play a role in depression? They can. There really are patients that have been on them for 30 years and doing beautifully and tolerant to the side effects. And, you know, as long as there's no physiological issues around cardiac or seizure, then we don't need to take them off. It's perfectly reasonable and probably the right thing to do to continue them. Granted, all medication should be, you know, attempted to be tapered intermittently to make sure they're still necessary. But at a certain point after the third or fourth failed taper, we just say, look, you're doing fine on disipramine or nortriptamine or nortriptyline, one of those medications, and just say, let's leave them alone. Their role for us in starting is really as augmentation. They're wonderful, stronger than the SNRIs for chronic pain, very strong for sleep, and good augmentations for depression and anxiety if you're mostly where you need to be on high-dose sertraline or escitalopram. The caveat is, again, though, you're going to need an EKG over 50, and you need to have a clear seizure history as well. Hmm. M-A-O-I's. What about the true dinosaur of depression management, the M-A-O-I's? Are they used at all anymore? M-A-O-I's have really almost completely fallen out of favor because we have so many safer alternatives, there are still people that use them, and they may in fact be stronger than everything else. But the special diet, the high degree of side effects, the interactions with other medications, which can be quite dangerous or even lethal, really vastly limit their use. Even when I was finishing residency, they had mostly fallen out of use, but MSAM, the selegiline patch, actually came out, and that is something you will see at times. You know, it's sort of the safest version of using MAOIs. Okay. Antipsychotics. Let's talk about antipsychotics in depression management. And I'll admit to sometimes feeling a little bit confused as to where these fit into helping our patients. Well, I will make it very straightforward and evidence-based for you. Perfect. Really, if you want to keep it simple, you've got two great second-generation antipsychotics that you can use if your patient is doing, again, better on your antidepressants, albeit whatever class. You're near max dose, but they're still not where they need to be. So they have clear improvements. They're tolerating the treatment, but they're maybe at moderate function at best. So augmentation with either quetiapine or aripiprazole, profoundly evidence-based. Very, very good. The difference being quetiapine is very, very sedating and can be quite weight-gaining. So if they can tolerate weight gain and they maybe are suffering from insomnia, that's your drug. And these dosages can be quite low. I mean, starting 12 to 25, you know, moving up no higher than 300. Aripiprazole is your less weight-gaining, less sedating alternative for a patient that maybe already has obesity or diabetes. It is still slightly sedating, so it still may help with sleep, 
The downside here, though, is it does have a little bit more motor side effects. So it can come with some akathisia, some restlessness, which, if present, is really not tolerable. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Others standalones. We're getting through the meds. There's so many options, which is why I'm glad you're here mm-hmm. to help us sort through this. There's another group that I think of as the standalones, and that's bupropion, ritazapine, and then vortioxetine and velazidone. I guess they don't stand alone because they're together, but I'm hoping you could review these as well. Well, no, you are technically correct. These are all technically in classes of their own, although they have similarities. Bupropion is really a lone gunman. Bupropion is an amazing medication. It's the only NDRI we have, so norepinephrine dopamine. It is like rocket fuel. It is absolutely the best thing we've got for depression without anxiety. It's got virtually no sex side effects, weight gain, or sedation, but can very much worsen anxiety and seizure risk and weight loss, particularly around eating disorders, electrolyte imbalances, is where we're going to be careful. So for a patient without anxiety, we would pretty much start here even before an SSRI. We talked just a moment ago about augmentation with antipsychotics. This is the other great augmenter. You add this to an SSRI or an SNRI for residual symptoms, particularly in a patient that may have some low energy, low focus, low motivation, low activity, and it can be absolutely amazing. There is some evidence that you may also have a reversal of some of the sex side effects associated with SSRIs or SNRIs, but it's not consistent. So it's worth trying, but unfortunately, a little bit of Viagra or sildenafil is probably the more effective option. Mm. I love bupropion in ADHD as well. It just helps with that focus just enough. Exactly. Depression plus ADHD, Mm -hmm. bupropion all the way. Yep. Two birds, one stone. Mirtazapine. Now, how about mirtazapine? Yeah, in a way, I think of mirtazapine as sort of the opposite of bupropion. Again, great standalone antidepressant. You could start this straight out of the gate. But here, you've got a very sedating, very calming antidepressant that is very, very prone to weight gain. So if you have a very nervous very depressed, very thin (laughs) patient who can't sleep, this is where you start. This is a special situation. But again, the sedation and weight gain are quite powerful. So it really has to be used carefully. It also has this sort of quirk of dosing in that it you started at seven and a half, you can move up to 15. In some patients, as you go up on the dose, it actually becomes less sedating because it becomes slightly more noradrenergic as you go. Now, that doesn't always happen, but it can. So it's just worth knowing. Hmm, okay. Vortioxetine and Velazidone. Now, how about Vortioxetine and Velazidone? What are they? How do they work? And when do we use them? I usually group them together, and it's reasonable to do so. They are SSRIs, but in addition to that, they're agonist and antagonist to serotonergic receptors. 
So they sort of raise all ships when it comes to serotonin, and then they go back and raise some of those ships a little more, and they push the other ships in the other direction. These are a little bit like a fancier version of trazodone that we would use for depression, anxiety, and sleep, but these are a little more tolerable. So the idea here is that they, in principle, protect a little bit from some of the sex side effects and some of the other issues like sedation. Now, there is some reasonable evidence that um, vortioxetine may be a little better for cognitive symptoms for someone who has brain fog associated with depression. Although, again, not, not always. And the velazodone as well. It's just really to be thought of as a slightly more tolerable SSRI is how I would usually suggest them. So if I have a patient who's doing great on an SSRI, but they just cannot get around, let's say, the sex side effects, then I'm going to consider a prior authorization for one of these. And other than that, they're pretty much hard to differentiate from the sertraline or the escitalopram. They are moderately effective at least, intermediate to low withdrawal, and really it's just that maybe a little less sex side effects. That's really the main difference. Mm, Okay. Trazodone. And I can't believe I forgot to include trazodone. You mentioned it, but what do we need to know about that drug? Well, so trazodone is a wonderful drug, but it is so sedating. Using it at full dose for depression is virtually never an option because once you get up over 100 milligrams, where the antidepressant properties begin, you are so tired, you're pretty much in bed all day. So that's the downside. There are people that are taking it for sleep and it's just not doing anything at 100. For those people uniquely, you may say, well, we're not going to use it for sleep, but we might actually be able to use it at two, 300 milligrams for your depression. Wow. It's one of those drugs that we mostly use for sleep, just as we mostly use the tricyclics for pain and sleep. All right. So those are the standard therapies that we think of in primary care. Could you review some of the interventional psychiatry options for us? Yeah. So there's actually quite a few, and they have really quite broad risks and benefits associated with them. So for instance, we rarely go into the vagal nerve stimulators, the deep brain stimulation. These things are incredibly dangerous and expensive and quite niche. What we do have, though, is we have ketamine, or primarily S-ketamine, using the nasal inhaled branded drug Spervato, which is very helpful. It can be administered in a primary care or psychiatry clinic and has rapid reversal of depression symptoms in many patients. Now, it does have a REMS associated with it, so you need training, you need observation for up to two hours after use to watch for blood pressure variations. And it can also have side effects associated with it being a dissociative anesthetic. You can actually get quite anxious. You know, you could get paranoid. You can even hallucinate. So although those are rare, they're not unheard of. The S-ketamine, the Spervato treatment is pretty up and coming. The data is actually much stronger for ketamine by infusion, but then you need to start an IV. So that's a much higher bar that we don't usually go to. The psychedelics are finding their way back into psychiatry after decades of being more dormant. 
But really, that data is still really varied and new, so I'd say not ready for prime time. Now, would you include cannabis in the same group as psychedelics, or would you consider that a separate group? I wouldn't. I'd consider it a separate group because psychedelics appear to be mostly benign but helpful under some circumstances. Cannabis is mostly problematic with rare possible benefits. So the risk benefits are a little bit different, but I'm sure there's going to be quite a bit of work continuing on both of those for the years to come. ECD and TMS. Now, how about electroconvulsive therapy and its cousin transcranial magnetic stimulation? You got it. Uh, okay. Yeah. ECT and TMS. ECT is still alive and well. It is still immensely beneficial, really more effective by a long shot than any other treatment, but comes with many burdens. It is very time-consuming. You have to get it approved, and there can be short-term memory loss, which is extremely off-putting to some people. It really is necessary at the end state of depression with catatonic depression, intractable psychotic depression, treatment-resistant depression in the pregnant these sorts of things. So there is still a role for it, a little outside of uh, the primary care provider's purview. That would be sort of after the referral to psychiatry in most cases, or from the psychiatric hospital admission. TMS, on the other hand, is sort of the new ECT, which is virtually side effect free. I mean, some mild headache or scalp discomfort tends to be virtually all you hear about as side effects. It is not as effective as ECT, but growing more effective each year as the technology improves, and it is office-based. So with ECT, you need sedation, you need a surgical suite, you need really a full staff. With TMS, you just need a machine, a doctor, and a TMS tech, and you walk in, you get your treatment, you walk out. So you can get TMS while going to school or working. The only caveat is it is a couple days a week for a few weeks and then it tapers off. So it's still a commitment, but it's not ECT, which is four or five hours a day, every day for weeks. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Other treatment modalities. Are there any treatment modalities that we have not covered so far, Sean? I feel like we've got a lot of them. Is there any we're missing? You know, we really hit the major players. I mean, really, we talk about meds therapy, and lifestyle. And I think we really cover the ground well. I think what we really need to, as a medical culture, embrace is, again, finding the right combination for the patient and really pushing towards what they want, meeting them where they are, right? So again, are they open to meds? Are they open to therapy? Are they open to lifestyle factors? And which ones? And in the end, even though I might say, I think this is the medicine for you and the therapy and the lifestyle for you and you should do ketamine and TMS, it's really going to be up to the patient. So what works is what the patient will do first. Yeah, absolutely. And that's our goal is to partner with our patients in their journey towards improved mental health. It's not to tell them what they absolutely must do. It's to help them find what works for them. Exactly. And we've got a broad palette here to pick from. Yeah, we certainly do. Okay. 
Well, listen, Sean, thank you so much for joining us to share your expertise. We really appreciate it. And I know it's going to make a big difference in our patients' lives as we take this information back to our practices and do our best to help our patients. Great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks so much. Rural Medicine Talks. So this story occurs at my old employment facility, which was a small rural place in upstate New York. You'll remember about 28,000 volume, but two and a half hours by ground to a tertiary care center. We had services including OB, pediatrics, general surgery, anesthesia sort of during the daytime. And then certainly you were the only physician at night. That's Julie Veith. She's an eMERGE doc at the University of Vermont Medical Center and at the Elizabethtown Community Hospital. So let's hear about what happened on this particular shift. Luckily, this was a daytime shift. Midweek, late morning, we got a call from EMS saying they were bringing this 50-year-old female in. She had some shortness of breath, but now profound respiratory distress. They found her with initial O2 sats in the 60s. And for them, she quickly became altered. They placed her on a non-rebreather. They got her up to only in the 80s. And so they switched to CPAP at 15 liters still setting, though, only in the 80s. They didn't have a ton of history to provide. They said maybe some asthma, so they'd started giving two duonebs as well as 10 milligrams of dexamethasone. They obviously had some IV access, and they did obtain a blood glucose for that altered mental status, and it came back at 190. Immediately, you know, we start prepping a room just for a standard respiratory distress. I actually happened to have a second physician on with me. So I said, well, I'll take this one. You keep the rest of the department going. I called our respiratory therapist to give them a heads up. We didn't have an ETA at the moment. So that was a little unusual looking back. And actually shortly after that initial radio call, we got a call back from EMS saying, oh, by the way, she's 800 pounds. And so we're going to have to get a bariatric stretcher from another town, which means our ETA will actually be closer to 30 minutes. Okay, so that changes the possible anxiety around this particular case and also the logistics around this. As you said, you're having to get different stretchers and there's going to be delays in accessing her care. So this adds a little layer of complexity. All right. This also changed our view towards any type of airway plan, nursing plan. And as you said, the equipment was going to be an issue. I contacted our nursing director and found out that our own ED stretchers would not actually accommodate someone at 800 pounds if that was in fact her weight. Ours would only safely go up to about six to 650. So that meant we didn't have anything that we could transition this patient to in our emergency department, including an inpatient bed. Apparently, when we have bariatric patients like this, we actually have to order beds that we then rent for the time period of their admission. So there was nothing available that was going to keep this patient comfortable other than the stretcher that she was going to arrive on with EMS. But in the meantime, I thought, well, the primary issue here is going to be respiratory. So what is going to be our plan? At this patient's weight of approximately 800 pounds, could we establish an airway safely? Did she have any respiratory reserve? And, you know, what was going to be our backup? Of course, we think about that in every patient, but just knowing the bariatric component to this definitely complicated things. Now the patient arrives. What do you see? She arrives on this bariatric EMS stretcher. She's sitting 90 degrees upright on CPAP, completely updunded. We were able to get an initial set of vital signs, which were quite reassuring given the circumstances. 
She did have a blood pressure, 160 over 133. Not sure how real that diastolic was. Her heart rate was 95. She was breathing 28 to 32. She was afebrile. And the O2 set we were getting was only 84% on CPAP. She had an IV in place. There was no family member present, unfortunately, with her. And EMS didn't have any additional information to give me other than what we've already heard. Also, I had no previous records in our electronic medical record system because she'd never been at our institution or anything that we could access in the past. Let's try and break it down a little bit. So what are the three main presenting issues that you're thinking about? First, obviously, ABCs with that neurostatus. So respiratory distress or respiratory failure at this point with hypoxia, not knowing if there was a hypercarbic component. This questionable history of asthma, could there be CHF? And then obviously, airway, 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 given that she's obtunded. But that's definitely a little bit more complicated than just saying secure an airway. So I switched her over to BiPAP to buy me some time. There are a couple of other big issues here. This altered mental status, for one. What were your thoughts on that? Initially, again, I wasn't really sure if this was just all hypercarbia leading to the altered mental status. Could there be a neuroetiology here? Any type of tox? I had no one else at the bedside from this household to tell me any additional information. There was no way I was going to get um, a decent neuro exam on this patient to, for example, rule out or try to rule in any type of stroke or you know, profound neurological event. We already had that blood glucose, which was normal, so we at least ruled out hypoglycemia, but other tox things, you know, her pupils were not pinpoint. Certainly could have thought about Narcan in this instance, but didn't feel the need to go down that pathway. Yeah, and although it can be frustrating not to have sort of the history that can really direct you how to proceed, in some other ways, when things are really stressful, it can also be a bit of a relief because you're like, I'm just going to focus on the ABCs. Like right now, I've just got to focus on that and we'll figure out the differentials and all the extra tests that we'll do afterwards. So that can sometimes be a bit of a bonus when you're in the first, you know, five to 10 minutes. Obviously her size, this is an issue that, you know, in terms of the physical infrastructure that you needed, the special stretchers, and what other limitations or stressors did that put on your team in terms of how you were going to be able to care for her? The fact that she was reportedly 800 pounds cannot be ignored. It's extremely difficult to care for a patient of this weight and size, no matter what condition we're treating and dealing with. And so we just had to proceed with what we had at the bedside and really take this all into account and and try to work around this limitation. One thing that we ended up doing quite quickly after we switched her over to BiPAP was I ended up positioning someone on each side of her head to support her head, keep it upright, and actually keep her airway open. And those techs ended up doing that for quite a while, which we will talk about. But that helped in her positioning and in her oxygenation. So between those two maneuvers of, of getting her on BiPAP and then straightening her airway manually, one on each side to keep that upright, with her BiPAP settings of 20 over 12 and putting her right on 100%, I was actually able to get her O2 set up to 96%. She was pulling decent tidal volumes on that. So I could take a sigh of relief, at least knowing we were oxygenating her and now could figure out what we were going to do next. What about other elements of the physical exam and what other interventions did you do? 
Well, in terms of the mental status, you know, this concern about her GCS, which, you know, really is a trauma number, but let's just talk about it for a second. I mean, we're sort of always taught GCS less than eight, like this number eight is magical, apparently, and we're supposed to secure that airway. I couldn't even think about that at the time, because all I knew right now is that if I tried to do that, she would have a high mortality rate. And so I ignored temporarily the fact that she was obtunded and on BiPAP, which we can think is perhaps a contraindication to BiPAP. But at this point, again, it was just buying me time while I could collect some data, try to do an exam, etc. In terms of her exam, I couldn't hear anything. Number one, we had her in a room that had one of these external machines for negative pressure, which are extremely loud because this was still during, you know, a, a COVID peak. And so adding in that extra sound, plus the fact that I just couldn't get a stethoscope to penetrate that chest wall to hear anything, that was quite a useless part of my exam. Ultrasound, again, couldn't, couldn't penetrate enough of the chest wall to, to really see anything there. In terms of her lower extremities, I thought maybe there was a little bit of edema, but honestly, it was really difficult to tell if that was edema or adiposity in her lower extremities. I did have that data point that she was normo or hypertensive, so that was reassuring. We were able to get an EKG quite quickly. It was sinus rhythm to sinus tack with a right bundle, but no obvious ischemic changes. And I was able to get a VBG giving me uh, quick results in her chemistry and most of her electrolytes. That was extremely useful. We're going to talk about her lab results in a second, but did you have IV access going at this point? Was it difficult to get access? So how did you go through with that thought process? So EMS had been able to secure one 20-gauge peripheral IV, which was fantastic, and we were actually able to pretty easily get a second one in, so I didn't have to mess around with either an IO or an ultrasound-guided IV, et cetera. So, phew, check mark, done, let's move on. You mentioned COVID. I'm assuming you did a COVID swab. What about any other acute medications? You mentioned that she'd be given to nebulizers. Is there anything else that you were throwing at her at this point? Yeah, so she'd been given those two nebulizer treatments and 10 milligrams of dexamethasone. I was still in this, does she have asthma or not? And so I thought, what the heck? Let's throw some magnesium at her and keep another nebulizer going through the uh, BiPAP. Okay, so you mentioned that you had the bedside um, labs. So what did those show? Well, her potassium came back at 6.3, but with a normal BUN and creatinine. But she did have this right bundle on EKG. I had nothing old to compare to. So what the heck? Let's throw some calcium at that in case that potassium is real and not hemolyzed from the type of uh, blood draw that this was. Oh, okay. And what about her gas? Her gas was still pending at this point, which, you know, is really never a good sign when it takes a little bit longer. But luckily in this situation, a little bit longer meant only a couple of minutes. And that VBG ended up coming back with a pH of 7.18. Now the bicarb on that was 31. That's not a serum bicarb. And it also was able to give me a lactate of 2.6. And so from that information, I knew, you know, well, she's acidotic. I didn't have an accurate PCO2 because it was reading too high on the VBG. Okay, so we've got an acidotic patient. She's on BiPAP. She's got uh, widened QRS. Her potassium's up. She's obtunded. She's got two people holding her airway open. And we still don't know a lot about this person. Um, has any family called in or anyone arrived? Are you getting any extra information? At this point, her husband did arrive. He confirms that there is this history of asthma. She 
is triple COVID vaccinated, and she'd had a negative COVID test at home two days ago. She does not smoke. She's not on home oxygen. She's never been diagnosed with COPD. There's no formal diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, but she does sleep sitting upright because she can't breathe when she lies flat, is what he reports. He also adds that she stopped walking two months ago and her weight started increasing, and he thinks that she's been retaining fluid for the last two weeks. Also, um, you mentioned that she tested negative COVID at home two days prior. Did you have your COVID result back yet, or was this PCR brewing in the lab and was going to be there for days and days? Oh, no, that had just popped back, and it was positive. COVID positive, respiratory failure, asthmatic, morbid obesity. What did you guys do next? Well, with this added history from the husband that she'd been retaining fluid for the last two weeks, I thought, what the heck? This is completely still undifferentiated, besides the fact that we now have a positive COVID result. But maybe there is some new heart failure here. I mean, certainly she has risk factors to develop heart failure. So I decided to add in some Lasix. I had that normal creatinine and also a higher dose nitroglycerin drip. While I was waiting for other data points to come back, And while I had summoned a crew to the bedside to decide at this point, what are we going to do with this lady's airway since she's still quite obtunded? What did your uh, team of airway experts have to say? Well, like I mentioned, this was a weekday, mid to late morning. So I was able to call our chief anesthesiologist. Our ENT surgeon happened to be across the street doing office visits. So I called him. I had the second ED physician as well, and so we decided to do a little airway huddle and go through the pros and cons of, do we need an airway? And if so, what kind of airway? And how are we going to actually get that into her trachea in order to do this safely without contributing to any increased morbidity and mortality? Well, the first response from everybody was, oh, heck, no way. We're not touching this. (laughs) We kept talking after that, oh, heck, no way moment. And we went through, you know, do we just keep her on BiPAP? Yes, she's obtunded, but we have these two people at the bedside. The nurse was also in the room constantly. And so it wasn't as if we were placing her on BiPAP in an obtunded state and then just walking away, which is obviously something you never want to do. So from that aspect, that actually seemed maybe that was reasonable and just sort of see what happened over the next hour or two. All right, so that's option number one. Option number two is... We have this unrecordable PCO2 level on a VBG, and you know clearly she's obtunded and acidotic, and now also COVID positive, so you have that PPE aerosolizing component to think about. But we're two years into the pandemic at this point, so we, you know, we know how to protect ourselves. Do we try to intubate this woman? Well, what are the different ways we could do that? Clearly, this is not somebody that you want to paralyze and take away any of her drive. So that was off the table immediately. Do we try a fiber optic approach? Well, the problem with that is that she really didn't seem to have any pulmonary reserve and fiber optic takes, you know, a little bit of time. And so ENT and anesthesia were not fans of this approach at all, even if we kept her drive up, just because we couldn't take her off BiPAP or CPAP in order to do that. So that was kind of immediately off the table. Do we put an LMA in? Well. Was an LMA actually better than what we were doing right now? Because probably with an LMA, we might have to sedate her a little bit just to tolerate that. That didn't really feel like we were getting greener grass by moving to that option. Crike? Ooh, yikes. You know, 
not great in the best of times in an emergency. And then you add in the fact that her neck is, you know, she's got adiposity there. That also seemed like not an ideal situation. Or do we go with this awake sort of anterior or what someone I saw call is like the tomahawk approach, you know, where you keep her upright, you approach from the front or from keeping her at 90 degrees and really reaching all the way over her with a bougie and a video. So those were all of the options that came up. I'm sure others listening will say, well, why didn't you do X, Y, or Z um, and have other options? But this is what our team came up with in the moment, looking at this patient with the data points we had in front of us. And we're just going to let her sit here for a second while we really try and do this the best we can, because you do actually have time right now. You obviously don't want to leave her in this state forever, but she is ventilating. She is oxygenating. So it gives you that little bit of wiggle room, which can really be a huge help. And the idea of having this huddle where you might have thought of all these things on your own, but having someone to bounce the ideas off of and say, am I crazy to think that we shouldn't do this? You know, do you think it's okay not to do this? And having the team approach, I think, is really helpful. Yeah, and I think that's where exposing yourself to as many type of airway cases as possible during residency or if you're working in a larger institution and then you know you're going to be going to these smaller places, getting all of that experience is just so important because not everything follows a textbook, as, as you mentioned. So this was definitely one of those situations where we, we went through all of the different options, including the option of just leaving her as she was. And in the end, that's actually what we ended up doing. Our anesthesiologist went back upstairs to the OR, ENT uh, surgeon went back across to his office. And luckily, this other ED physician, she was sort of managing the rest of the ED while I was glued in this room. We were coming up with a plan with the nurse. And by the way, these two techs were still holding her head upright. So did you get any more tests back at this point um, or do any other interventions in terms of medications? Her troponin was negative and her BNP was up at 2,500. I mean, definitely high. And in the setting of someone who supposedly doesn't have heart failure, abnormal, but it wasn't 14 or 20,000. I also had a CBC showing a white count of 12. And I thought, "Eh, heck, why not? Let's throw some antibiotics in her. Definitely with the COVID adding in some complicating factors, maybe there's a viral pneumonia there that certainly I'm not going to treat with antibiotics, but maybe she has a superimposed bacterial on top of that. And Really, of all the patients that we give antibiotics to, I thought she probably deserves some. So we covered her for uh, community-acquired pneumonia as well. So I'd also, by this point, added in some insulin and IV glucose, just again to treat that hyper-K. The plan was that we would repeat her labs an hour after that and just see what we were at and also obtain it an actual lab sample. Okay. Now, you mentioned when she first came in that she was on this bariatric EMS stretcher. Was she still on this stretcher at this point? Because I imagine that makes just maneuvering around her that much more difficult. Oh, yes, she was. We had not received any new equipment from any outlying hospital, although our maintenance team had decided to drive to our sister hospital about 40 minutes away, where someone had discovered an old bariatric bed in a back hallway that was actually still usable. And so they were working on getting that into a truck to bring us that, but it hadn't arrived yet. Okay. And how is she doing at this point? Well, she's not worse. I wouldn't say she's better, but I'll take not worse at this point. But we were having difficulty, you know, getting accurate blood pressures. I wasn't really sure if I had a that systolic of 160. Certainly, I didn't think that diastolic of 130 was accurate. So I did ask our anesthesiologist before he left to just 
put in an A-line to help us out. And so he was able to get that in for me. And then we could also pull off ABGs, which was gonna really help me guide therapy. And what results did you get from the ABG? So our first ABG was drawn probably about an hour after she arrived. Her pH was still 7.19, but her PCO2 was 89, which was certainly better than, you know, unrecordable on that VBG that I'd gotten before. And her PO2 was actually 215 with an O2 sat on that ABG of 99%. So I was really actually quite reassured by that and hoping that, well, maybe if we just stay the course, we can correct some of these numbers and maybe her altered mental status will improve. But that's a lot of wishful thinking. And the other point in this case was that I knew I couldn't keep her at the hospital I was currently working at. Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, this entire time while you're trying to manage this case of seemingly respiratory failure, whether it's hypercarbic or another source, it's in the back of your head the whole time you must be thinking, I need to get this person out of here and you know, stabilize and go. So. What were your thoughts on transfer? Where would she be going? And how were you going to get her there? Yeah, all great questions. So I started by calling one of our tertiary care center hospitals that we typically will transfer many of our patients to. But by ground, it's two hours and 45 minutes. And so we were looking at at least that transport time because our flight options were off limits uh, given her bariatric size. Luckily, they had an ICU bed. The ICU physician was more than willing to take this patient. So that was a huge relief. But we were going to have to wait for a team to come from their institution two hours. Again, that's about a three-hour drive. And then transfer her back. Oh, but that team was out on another transfer. So we're going to have to wait for the nighttime team to come in at 7 o'clock, do their huddle and then start their drive over to us. So I'm looking at a minimum time of keeping her in our ED now of 10 to 12 hours. Give us a sense of her clinical status at this point. Had her mental status started to improve yet? How are things going? It really hadn't at this point, but over the afternoon, since she was with me all afternoon, we started to actually see some gradual improvements and it was tracking with her ABGs. Her pH was starting to improve. Her PCO2 was starting to trend down. She started to improve in her mental status and actually would wake up to voice, follow very simple commands, and then kind of drift off again. In those few hours after her initial presentation, I ended up also stopping that nitro drip. Her blood pressure started to come down too quickly, and I wasn't convinced that this was flash pulmonary edema or that I was really getting any bang for my buck with this nitro drip. I was still thinking that this was more asthma, maybe even COPD, but you know, really more asthma in this situation with her impaired airway, given that we still had two people holding her airway open. And if she had been at home on the floor or not in an ideal position at home, there was a good chance she'd been hours at home without a properly opened airway, which is, had also likely contributed to her hypercarbia. Eventually, I'm assuming transfer team came. Did they have to have a special equipment in their ambulance? They ended up coming with one of their bigger, more you know, critical care ambulances, which are just huge. And they also brought an extra staff, given the bariatric size of the patient, so that they could manipulate her in the back of the ambulance if they needed to. By that point, also, I would say mid-afternoon, probably four hours by the time she'd gotten there, this old bariatric bed had arrived from another hospital. So using extra staff from the operating room, techs from all over the hospital, I ended up 
orchestrating her movement from this bariatric EMS stretcher over to this bariatric bed. We had 12 people around her. We were able to get a hover mat under her, which really helped. We were able to position her airway as we transitioned her over. She was definitely more comfortable. And we were able to position pillows and just the head of the bed a lot more so that I didn't have to have two techs keeping her airway open five hours into this. They had been there for the entire time keeping her airway open up to this point. Any news on how she did? My understanding is she continued to improve throughout the evening, actually, to the point where her departing ABG was 7.3, PCO2 of 57. We'd been able to wean down her FiO2. And so, and you know, requiring a couple doses of haloperidol. In fact, at the point where the transfer team got there, she started arguing with them that she didn't want to go. So she was definitely <laughs> awake enough to have that conversation. I believe that the team basically insisted that she depart and, and go to this bigger institution. And she made it there safely. She ended up staying at the tertiary care center um, for about two weeks. She avoided intubation. She was only in the ICU for two days. She ended up being weaned to high-flow nasal cannula and then down to regular nasal cannula to the point where they were going to place her on two liters during the daytime, BiPAP at night. They couldn't do an official sleep study because of her COVID status, but they diureased her over 100 pounds. She went negative 70 liters, and she actually became slightly more mobile, which was fantastic. I think that's such an interesting case and brings up so many different points in terms of just the physical infrastructure that's needed for caring for larger patients, the manpower that's needed, and also, again, this issue of intubation. And I think we're always trained to, you know, secure the airway, get it done right away, right away. But sometimes it's not always the right thing for the patient. And one of the benefits, I think, of rural locations is that we don't necessarily have that pressure to intubate right away because we know we're going to be sitting with these patients for a long time. And we know we will be watching them evolve and it's going to be us who's in charge of them. And so I think I probably am able to avoid intubations in a lot of these cases where in a bigger center, they might get intubated right away and, you know, and sort of sent off to the ICU. Of course, it'd be nice for the flow of the emergency department and for our stress levels if that could happen in rural locations. But at the same time, we also get to see how the pathology is evolving and often our patients will surprise us. And with just a little bit of support, they will come back and start yelling and complaining that they want to go home. Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite convinced that had we tried to intubate this patient, we probably would have killed her. I don't have any doubt that it would have been very messy, very stressful. She had no pulmonary reserve. And her husband had even told us, you know, she can't lie flat. And I think even in the best of circumstances with the most expert airway team possible, this would have been an absolute disaster. And even if you had been able to intubate her and, you know, stabilized her on the vent, how would she be extubated? This could have been, you know, she would get an infection in the ICU. And she already had COVID going on. This is just so many different ways that this could have gone terribly. And I think you guys really did her a great service by taking the time and just doing it step by step and recognizing that sometimes people fall outside of those algorithms. Yeah, sitting on your hands and feeling like you're doing nothing except BiPAP and holding your head upright certainly doesn't always feel like the right thing to do. But in this situation, I think it was. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for sharing this case and keep the stories coming. And we're always interested to hear about how things are in rural New York and uh, Vermont. Thanks so much, Julie. Thanks, Vanessa. Talk to you soon. Oh, yeah. That's right. Chip could 
Primary Care Medical Abstracts. With Ken and Steve. Happy holidays, PCMA listeners. I hope everybody is doing well. This is the December edition of PCMA. Joining me as always to critically assess the literature, Dr. Steve Brown. Another very fun year of PCMA, Ken. It's good to be here. And you know what? We've got 10 papers, but I can't wait to get to the 10th because, oh, wait until you guys hear the 10th. It is so much fun. It's a holiday treat. It's a Festivus miracle. <laughs> uh, let's get to the uh, 10 and we're, we're starting with the force trial. So paper one. Abstract number one, a mobilization of torus fractures of the wrist in children, force, a randomized control equivalence trial in the UK, The Lancet 2022. So Steve, buckle fractures of the distal radius, they're the most common fractures seen in children. And despite being a very common injury, they're often managed very differently. Some people put casts on, some people put splints on, some people use a tensor bandage. And then with follow-up, some get referred to special pediatric orthopedic clinics. Some just follow up with their primary care physicians. And some just go off into the ether and don't have any follow-up and do just fine. Oops, spoiler alert. So the objective of this study was to see if a tensor bandage, and that's referred to as a crepe or a wrap in other countries, to see if it was equivalent to rigid immobilization in children with a wrist buckle fracture. And the force study was a multi-center, randomized, non-blinded, the child would know and the parents would know and the practitioners would know what you had on their wrist. And it was an equivalence trial, and we don't see a lot of equivalence trials. And it was conducted in 23 different emergency departments in the UK. So they recruited children between the ages of 4 and 15 years of age with these buckle wrist fractures, and they randomized them to either rigid immobilization or this tensor bandage. The primary outcome was pain on day three, measured using that faces scale. You know, the ones with the emojis where they have the very upset child emoji face and yes, the very happy emoji face. So, you know, you just looked at the emojis and said, what's your pain? They had a number of secondary outcomes. They looked at their function, their quality of life. How much analgesic did they need to use? Were they missing school? Did they have to use more healthcare resources afterwards? Treatment satisfaction and to see if there was any complications. So they recruited almost 1,000 patients into this study. 61% were male, and the mean age was 10 years of age. For that primary outcome, pain on day three was equivalent. It was three out of 10, so there was no statistical difference between the two. There was also no statistical difference between the two groups in regards to function and quality of life, but the parents liked that rigid immobilization on day one more. They were more satisfied when their child was locked into a rigid immobilization, but by six weeks, yeah, there was no difference. And the number of complications was so low, they couldn't even statistically analyze it in any formal way. And nobody had a case of worsening deformities. So this trial started originally randomizing children to a no treatment arm. And parents were like, Whoa, yeah, that's, uh, you know, no, we can't, we're not happy with that. I mean, I came, I want something for coming here. I mean, at least a Band-Aid, right? <laughs> so they had to uh, change the protocol and at least offer them a tensor bandage. And 94% of the parents accepted the bandage. Only 6%, yeah, no, that's fine. I, I'm fine with nothing. And this really highlights that desire to do something, right? We want to do something. 
and it can be a strong motivator. And we see this in physicians with intervention bias. And of course, it reminds me of my mentor, Dr. Hoffman, who says, don't just do something, stand there. This study also confirms another randomized control trial that was published 16 years ago and covered on the July 2006 EMA, an excellent example of how it can take over 10 years for knowledge translation. Yeah, my absolute favorite part about the study was that they wanted to do nothing, no intervention. And I guess they had like parents that were advising them on the trial and they're like, we can't tell our kids to do nothing. And so the bandage, they didn't even have to wear it. It was like an option of wearing <laughs> they, the Yeah, they handed them and they, here it is. Uh, use it if you want. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. But yeah, so most of the, they cast was an option, but almost all of the kids ended up with a rigid wrist splint, which obviously is not necessary. It reminds me of a recent study also that said for a scaphoid fracture that you don't actually have to put the thumb into a cast. You can just have a straight arm cast. And so I think it seems like you want to do more for these fractures, but actually you don't have to. The body heals itself fine. Don't just do something. Stand there. Bottom line. It's very reasonable to treat buckle fractures of the wrist with a tensor bandage. Paper two. Abstract number two, intensive serum urate lowering with oral urate lowering therapy for erosive gout, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial from Arthritis and Rheumatology, June 2022. There's all these areas of medicine that we talk about getting to a target, and we've definitely heard this lately in gout also, So, because international and U.S. guidelines actually recommend a serum urate target of 0.30 millimoles per liter, or for me, that would be five milligrams per deciliter for severe gout. So I'm going to use the milligrams per deciliter for the rest of this, if that's, if that's okay with you, Ken. Uh, yeah, I can do both. It's, uh, it's sort of like <laughs> the diabetes and the sugar levels. I always have to do the translation. Right. So trials have shown that increasing the allopurinol doses to achieve a serum urate target of six milligrams per deciliter or less may reduce progression of bone erosion. Notice I use the word may there because the evidence is is sort of mediocre. And lower serum urate targets seem to lead to less crystal deposition in theory, which helps joints heal, leading to less pain and disability. So that's sort of the pathophysiologic thought process here. So these authors studied whether even having a lower target, 3.3 milligrams per deciliter, could improve bone erosion scores compared to a higher target of 5 milligrams per deciliter in patients with erosive gout. So this is a very small subset of patients. The study design was a two-year double-blind randomized control trial, 104 patients with erosive gout who had serum urate levels of 5 or more at baseline. This was a clinical research facility in a tertiary medical care center in New Zealand. They randomly assigned the patients to either intensive serum urate target or standard target, and the medications were titrated using a protocol, which is an extremely aggressive protocol. First, you did maximum dose allopurinol. Next step was maximum dose allopurinol plus probenicid. Next step was faboxostat, although this was later changed after an FDA warning about cardiovascular safety with faboxostat. 
again, you know, more is not always better. Did they go as far as dialysis? Yeah, we're going to get aggressive. We're just going to dialyze your urate out. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. It was an aggressive protocol. That's the fifth step. Yeah. The fourth step was benzbromerone plus allopurinol. So very aggressive efforts to urate lower. And the primary endpoint was CT bone erosion score at years one and two. They also looked at this Omeract score, which is outcome measures in rheumatology, which is like a gout core outcome domains. That was a secondary endpoint. And there are some patient-oriented components in there, like quality of life and pain. But really, the study was designed based on looking at disease-oriented evidence, these CT bone erosion scores. The patients, not totally surprisingly, 96% male, mostly from a European background. Average age was 62. These patients tend to have comorbidities, so half had hypertension. They basically were in no pain at the start of the study, and half had had a gout flare in the previous three months. So what are the results? The intensive treatment group had more combination therapy, unsurprising, and significantly lower urate levels. There were small increases in CT bone erosion scores in both groups and no difference between them. This Omeract score improved in both groups, no difference between them. And the study was underpowered to detect adverse effects, but there was a pretty strong hint of more circulatory problems and also infections in the intensive treatment group. So several issues here. This takes place at a tertiary care medical center, so we don't know how it applies to primary care. There's no difference in disease or patient-oriented outcomes, and this only applies to patients with erosive gout. This seems really pretty aggressive to me with minimal benefit, especially because the patients might have other comorbidities that are more important to tackle to improve quality of life. And if you're trying to, you know, deprescribe or not have your, your patients on a whole bunch of meds, then this seems like a pretty low priority to me. Yeah, it's just another small study that adds to the list of studies that says driving things lower is not always better. I mean, we've seen this with aggressive sugar lowering and diabetes, aggressive blood pressure lowering in some patients, lower cholesterol levels in some patients. I mean, this drive to aggressively lower numbers, which are surrogate outcomes, we can lose focus on what's really important, and that is the patient-oriented outcome. Yeah, most of my patients with gout who have gouty flares get a pretty good sense of their own sort of set point. And I think it's much more useful to ask the patient than it is to check, you know, a serum urate level every other day. Bottom line. Aggressively treating to lower target in gout does not improve radiological or clinical outcomes and may be harmful. Paper three. Abstract number three. Cost-effectiveness of aducanumab and donanimab for early Alzheimer's disease in the U.S. This was in JAMA Neurology 2022. I don't know why I picked these papers with, you know, monoclonal antibodies because I know I'm going to absolutely not be able to pronounce them correctly. But cost-effective analyses, they're not my favorite study design. But I really thought that this was important to include in the PCMA database because we have covered some of these topics before. So the objective of this study was to estimate the cost-effectiveness of these two different anti-amyloid monoclonal antibodies 
and compare them to standard care for early Alzheimer's disease. Now, the authors use the Consolidated Health Economic Evaluation Reporting Standards. Cheers! Morning, everybody. <laughs> for their decision analytic model study. They did not have a primary outcome, but rather multiple outcomes, including survival, quality of life years, and healthcare sector and societal costs. Now, treatment was considered cost-effectiveness if the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, the ICER, was $150,000 per quality of life year or less. Now, with any kind of cost-effective model, you have to have all these different inputs. So they looked at age, natural history of the disease, severity of the disease, quality of life estimates, background care costs, woot, 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 efficacy of the therapy, treatment costs, and adverse events. So results were that both of these anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody drugs were not cost-effectiveness. Um, where, where was this published? The Journal of Duh? Okay, so <laughs> cost-effective analysis always comes down to the assumptions made to create the model. And there were multiple variables that I talked about that needed to be inputted. And the findings of this study, showing that they were not cost-effective, are congruent with the report from the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. However, the Achilles heel Oh, I'm going all Greek, you know, the Oracle yeah. of Delphi. The Achilles heel to this entire topic is the efficacy of these new therapies. And those claiming efficacy of these monoclonal antibodies for a patient-oriented outcome have not yet met their burden of proof. The studies so far show a decrease of amyloid. You can decrease this disease-oriented outcome but not convincing evidence of slowing the cognitive decline in Alzheimer's patients. And we've covered these issues on abstract number two and abstract number nine back in January 2022 on PCMA. And then if you want, you can look at abstract number eight from September 2022 PCMA. If these drugs cannot establish efficacy, then even if they were free, how could they possibly be cost-effective? Yeah, the most important part of cost-effective is effective. And I do appreciate that they included the cost of monitoring because they don't always do that. And as you'll remember from when we looked at these studies before, there are some patients that actually get brain swelling in these like amyloid plaques. And so it is recommended that you have serial MRIs to monitor that. This sounds like do not sign me up for this in any way. But at least they included that cost in their estimation. Yeah, see, cost-effective analysis, you know, you're talking about cost, right? But like you said, the really important word in that three-word analysis is effectiveness. And what about the harms? Right, like we've talked on PCMA about the STEPS approach to looking at new medications. It should be safe, tolerable, effective. The price should be reasonable, and it should be simple to use. So the steps analysis, and as we talked about before, these drugs pretty much fail in all areas of Are steps. you saying they fell down the stairs? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Bottom line. Before we start considering if a drug is cost-effective, we should first determine if it works, and that has not been demonstrated for these two expensive anti-amyloid monoclonal antibody drugs for Alzheimer's disease. Paper 4. 
Abstract number four is factors associated with physician tolerance of uncertainty, an observational study. And this is from Journal of General Internal Medicine, May 2022. Journal of General Internal Medicine does some great stuff. Before we start this, think to yourself the answer to this question. I find the uncertainty involved in patient care disconcerting. No. That's good. So you'll see how that might impact your career as a physician. But others can think about how they feel about the uncertainty involved in patient care and whether that's disconcerting to you. And this is actually a one-question uncertainty item that's based on a 15-item physician's reaction to uncertainty scale. And this actually one item has been shown to stratify physicians into low, medium, and high tolerance of uncertainty. So our co-host here, Ken, has a high tolerance of uncertainty. And we know how important physician dissatisfaction and burnout is now and how important factors those are in healthcare. And you might wonder what factors are associated with tolerance of uncertainty and if it's related to burnout. I like the description they used of burnout, which is, quote, the index of dislocation between what people are and what they have to do. And some studies, tolerance of uncertainty has been associated with positive healthcare outcomes even. So these authors conducted a study of over 2,000 physicians at Massachusetts General Physicians Organization. They examined associations between tolerance of uncertainty and other factors. So 93% of the physicians responded. This must have been like, you get in big trouble if you don't respond to this survey. And lower tolerance of uncertainty was mildly associated with female gender. The odds ratio there was just 1.2, and it was close to confidence interval of one. Primary care practice, odds ratio 1.56. Years since training, so the longer someone was in training, the more they could tolerate uncertainty, but that was a soft association. And then lacking a trusted advisor, 1.25 odds ratios. After they did some fancy adjustments, physicians with low tolerance of uncertainty were more likely to be burned out by a factor of three, less likely to be satisfied with their career by a factor of 0.37, and less likely to be engaged at work, which the odds ratio was 0.87. So the authors feel that this could generate a hypothesis that if we could focus on understanding and embracing uncertainty, then maybe that could affect our ability to reduce burnout. And then maybe we should also pay more attention to physicians new in practice, those in specialties with higher degrees of uncertainty and undifferentiated illness, like what we do in primary care, and that also that trusted advisors could be protective. So this is a, this is a survey. We don't do a lot of survey data on PCMA. Because in general, it, it doesn't really tell us like how we would change practice. I thought it was interesting to have this one sort of powerful question. And I can't imagine that they could create a perspective trial, although they talk about it, because the evidence for interventions to reduce burnout are in general very weak. And I can't imagine what sort of intervention you could plan for this. But I did think the the concepts of for maybe for physicians to kind of assess themselves, how they feel about uncertainty, and is there someone they can talk with, a trusted advisor, to either make them feel less uncertain or to kind of process you know, the, their thoughts and thinking through uncertainty. 
<laughs> I, I'm glad you picked this one. I had so many thoughts about this particular paper. The first one, of course, was the 93% response rate. I mean, really? 93%. Now, this wasn't just a yes, no, swipe right, swipe left online, you know, thing. This was an 18-page, 30-minute online survey. How did you get 93% of 2,000 physicians to do anything? And you said they must have had, like, you know, force to do it. They actually had financial compensation. And it was $166 all the way up to over $800, depending on how much you work. So if you're more full-time and less, you know, full-time equivalents kind of thing. They based it on RVUs, I think. But yeah, you were paid hundreds of dollars to complete this survey. So I I think it was a carrot rather than a stick that helped complete the survey. I'd really like to see results from 2021, you know, one year into COVID. Do they replicate? Bottom line. Low tolerance of uncertainty may be a factor in burnout, especially for primary care physicians. Paper five. Abstract number five, efficacy of brief interventions for unhealthy drug use in outpatient medical care, a systematic review and meta-analysis in the Journal of General Internal Medicine 2022. And I like the idea of nudging people towards better health. I like, you know, to have that gentle discussion where I'm not wagging my finger at people. So I like the idea of some brief intervention, something that I could just nudge them. And then the patient comes up with the, yeah, they accept that and they internalize it and then they're making changes for the better. The study didn't help me with this one though. (laughs) So the objective of this study was to determine how effective a brief intervention in the outpatient setting could be on unhealthy drug use. And they registered their study, great. They followed the PRISMA guidelines, excellent. They limited their search to randomized control trials or cluster RCTs, which we've talked about before. And they compared brief interventions with usual care, but they did exclude alcohol misuse. So I think that's really important. This is not about alcohol as a substance use disorder. And their outpatient care clinics included primary care, obviously, but also the emergency department, women's health clinics, and then they excluded inpatient care or any specialty clinic. So this is not sending someone off to a specialty substance use disorder clinic and then nudging them. This is primary care, emergency care, and some women's health clinics. The primary outcomes were frequency and severity of drug use at follow-up. So severity was also multiple. It was a composite outcome that included frequency, cravings, withdrawals, and consequences in the physical, psychological, social, and vocational domains. So they're casting the net fairly wide there. They found 27 studies that were included in the narrative review, and only one was a clustered RCT. So everything else was a randomized one. Now they could meta-analyze only 20 of them, which included over 9,000 patients. But then you drill down to, okay, well, their primary outcome, 20 studies, 9,000 patients? No, primary outcome had nine studies and 3,300 patients. So it's about a third of what you would expect. You know, if you just read the abstract, that's why you need us, Steve, right? That's why PCMA (laughs) needs us. Yeah, so nine studies, 3,300 patients showing a lack of efficacy for a brief intervention for frequency and for severity. And then they had all these subgroups. Nah, I'm not going to go through those hypothesis generating. So while this systematic review meta-analysis failed to show efficacy of a brief intervention in the outpatient setting, for unhealthy drug use, it should not be interpreted 
that a brief intervention has been proven not to work. That's a separate claim. So there were many limitations to this study, including external validity to other countries besides the U.S., where 21 of the 27 studies were conducted. Also, most of the trials were done in the emergency department, not in the office setting. And so that brings up the whole idea of brief. Brief as it was a 25-minute intervention. So I have to say, I do not think of that word means what you think it means in the emergency department. <laughs> totally, and in all other ways, inconceivable. I mean, I've got the, you know, the <laughs> attention span of a squirrel. You know, so like, I mean, come on, people, right? Brief 25 minutes, high heterogeneity for that secondary primary outcome. And you know there can only be one. But 98% heterogeneity. I mean, should you even meta-analyze something with that high degree of heterogeneity? And they graded the evidence as low certainty evidence. Now, if you go back to the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force, it gives a B recommendation for screening adults by asking questions about unhealthy drug use. But they emphasize in the task force that if you're going to be screening for this, you better have an accurate way of diagnosing them have an effective treatment strategy, and those patients have access to that care that you either you can offer or you can refer to. So don't screen if you can't do that. Right. And actually, this is one of the rare areas where the American Academy of Family Physicians disagreed with the USPSDF because they said that really it only applies to opioid use because we have really effective treatments for opioid use. So you know, screening for marijuana use or methamphetamine use, maybe there's not those effective treatments that we talked about. We teach our residents to use motivational interviewing, which is the majority of what these brief interventions were. And it's helpful to just come to an understanding of where the patient is and what effort they're willing to put into it. And also it helps me decide how much effort to put into it. So I agree with you. Please don't interpret this to mean don't use motivational interviewing if that's the way it helps you talk to your patients that you're worried about substance use with. So is that getting into sort of the pre-contemplative, contemplative, that sort of stepwise approach just to sort of engage with the patient and say, where are you at with this? Right. And actually it asks them to put it on a scale of one to 10. So how much would you like to, to quit smoking marijuana on a scale of one to 10? If they're like three, then you're kind of like, okay, well, let's talk about it another time. And that person's pre-contemplative. But it also asks them to assign a level from one to 10 about how much they would be willing to do the next step. Like on a scale of one to 10, can you call the drug treatment center? And they say, oh, that's a 10. Then you say, okay, great. Let's do that for before the next time. Bottom line. Screening for unhealthy drug use in adults is reasonable, while brief interventions may not be effective. Paper six. Abstract number six, evaluation of best practice advisory on ordering prothrombin time and INRs and PTTs from JAMA Internal Medicine, September 2022. This is part of the less is more series. And, you know, this is a great example of like necessity is the parent of invention. So I thought this was a great little analysis and quality improvement project based on the fact that in 2021, along with a lot of other shortages that we had, there was a shortage of lab draw tubes that had the sodium citrate, which are used to measure the PTPTT and the INR. And also, as we know, according to Choosing Wisely Canada and lots of other literature, the PTPTT tests are rarely clinically indicated, only about 10% of the time. 
And I'll save my rant. Many of you have heard it already about the preoperative testing PTPTT, which is a total joke. That's not really what this is about. So, so I'll save that for a later time. But basically, this group at the University of Michigan implemented a quality improvement project in May 2021. It was in both patients in the emergency department and hospitalized patients. And the intervention was a very polite pop-up in the emergency medical record that they called a best practice advisory. When you went to order a PTPTT, there was a box that popped up that said, there's a national shortage on blue top tubes. And we request thoughtful restraint in reflexive ordering of PT, INR, PTT. Does this patient require this test measurement? And then it also had like clinical guidance was provided, then you could like click on that. And there's also an email and you were allowed to order the test anyway, regardless of whether you were following the rules or not. You just got this very polite, mildly worded pop-up. And so what was the result? Once they implemented this, the daily test decreased from a mean of 464 tests per day to a mean of 329 tests per day. So a decrease of about 31%. They don't follow to see what happened to this over more time. Often when you have these interventions, they can kind of wear out. And a before and after study is not really that strong of a study design. And it takes place in the middle of a pandemic with a national shortage of supplies. So we don't really necessarily know if this is generalizable. And we also don't know how many of these were indicated. So if we assume it was 10%, well, we didn't get rid of you know enough of them. But actually, a 30% change is actually kind of a strong improvement for this type of study. Yeah, one of the problems I generally have with quality improvement projects is publication bias. There's a huge publication bias on both the author side and the journal side. I mean, who's out there going, yeah, we did this great quality improvement project and we didn't get any better. So let's publish it and show it to everybody. And, you know, the journal says, hey, that's great. Let's show how, you know, you can't quality improve your center. (laughs) Just so obviously, (laughs) you know, you you get all these quality improvement projects and every quality improvement project seems to work. The next quality improvement project is the mouse gives you a mild shock when you order a test that's not indicated. And you have to rate that on a scale of zero to 10, because obviously... You know, it's so subjective. Some people might say that mild shock is an 11, whereas other people go, yeah, I'm dead inside. I didn't feel anything. Right. Bottom line. A best practice advisory pop-up can decrease the number of unnecessary lab tests ordered over the short term. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. Most healthcare interventions tested in Cochrane reviews are not effective according to high quality evidence. From the Rick Bucata School of Title Writing. Done. A systematic review and meta-analysis in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. One of my favorite journals, by the way. I like studies like this because it informs my skepticism. Not nihilism, not denialism, but scientific skepticism. We don't accept claims until we have sufficient evidence to accept a claim. So the objective of this study was to determine what proportion of healthcare interventions with high-quality evidence, is published in Cochrane Reviews. So they took a random sample of about a third of Cochrane Reviews, so it was like 2,400-plus studies, from 2008 to 2021. And they looked at interventions and compared to placebo or no treatment 
and had a great assessment of quality. So they had to have a treatment. That treatment had to be compared to a placebo or no treatment. And then they had to have some kind of grade assessment. And the outcome of interest was the proportion of interventions that had a high quality grade rating for at least one primary outcome, statistically significant positive result, and judged by the authors to be effective as well. They also quantified the proportion of interventions suggesting harm. This is interesting. So they found about 1,500 eligible interventions with only, wait for it, 5.6% meeting the criteria. That's 87 in total out of 1,500 studies for high-quality evidence of benefit. And harms were only measured in about a third of the studies for which statistical evidence of harm was 8%. So when they looked for it, which they didn't often do, and two-thirds of the time they didn't even look, 8% showed harm. And yet we're talking, when they, you know, we're looking for benefit for high-quality evidence, less, 5.6. So this study is consistent with other recent publications, and we covered a study demonstrating the lack of high-quality evidence to support most common elective orthopedic procedures. That was in PCMA January 2022. And then there was this umbrella review that was looking at the interventions relevant to emergency medicine, and it showed only 2.8% had high level of evidence. And then you can go to the review of the ACC AHA guidelines, and that quantified that only 9% of their recommendations were considered level A evidence, and that was back in PCMA July 2019. So this fits in that lane of yeah, we don't have a lot of high quality um, evidence to support what we're doing. Yeah. So maybe we shouldn't be demanding, telling doctors what to do in guidelines when there's, there's, <laughs> there's such low quality evidence. They mention very optimistically, policymakers should identify priority areas for generating higher quality evidence. That assumes that there's some kind of like overall master plan of what kind of research is needed in healthcare. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of the reason that we've gotten to where we are. Yeah. Doug Altman, Professor Doug Altman, you know, almost three decades ago, wrote an article in the BMJ talking about how we need less research, but better research, research done for the right reasons. He was talking about asking the important questions using the right methodology to answer those questions, and ensuring that we had patient-oriented outcomes as opposed to these surrogate outcomes or disease-oriented outcomes. Let's not just generate research for research's sake. Let's ask important questions. And so that means we could have actually less research. Bottom line. Less than 10% of healthcare interventions published in recent Cochrane reviews are supported by high-quality evidence and harms are underreported. Paper 8. Abstract number 8, early food intervention and skin emollients to prevent food allergy in young children, the PREVENT-ADOL trial. This is a factorial multicenter cluster randomized controlled trial, Lancet 2022 in June. And our colleagues talked about this on EMA. We thought it was important enough to talk about here also. Most of you know that you can cross over and listen to all the audio goodness on EMA if you're a subscriber to PCMA and, you know, not to mention everything that you listen to on Right on Prime. You can decide if you agree with 
the EMA guys or us on this topic? Well, we but, know what the right answer is, you know, Steve. Obviously. It's, it's obviously. clearly not Sanjay and Mike. Exactly. <laughs> so since the 2015 LEAP trial, which was published in the New England Journal, the approach to prevention of food allergies in, in little ones, babies, has basically taken a 180 degree turn. There are now recommendations to introduce peanuts and eggs early, especially in high-risk infants. For example, especially babies with like atopic dermatitis. So these authors from Sweden and Norway wanted to see if emollients or early food introduction decreased the risk of food allergy in normal risk infants. So this is important. The LEAP trial was talking about higher risk infants. So by definition, you're going to have to intervene on more kids to get an outcome if you go to lower risk children. So the study design was a two by two factorial cluster randomized trial, almost 2,400 infants. They recruited them antenatally at the 18 week visit. They were cluster randomized at birth to one of four groups. Number one, no intervention. Number two, the skin intervention group, which was emollients, bath additives, facial cream, starting at two weeks to nine months, at least four times per week. Number three. Then the food intervention group, which was early feeding of peanut, cow's milk, wheat, and eggs, starting at three months. They introduced the food sequentially, starting between 12 and 16 weeks, and in small amounts. So they talked about just like putting it on the finger of the parent to, you know, like lap up some peanut butter and no limit on the amount given. So those are the first three groups. Number four. The fourth group is combined, both skin and the food interventions. The primary outcome was allergy to any of the foods, the interventional foods, at 36 months determined by this expert panel that would look at the history and then also the skin prick tests. So the results. 44 kids had food allergy out of these almost 2,400. 32 of them were peanut allergy and 12 were egg allergy. 2.3% in the non-intervention group had food allergy. 3.0% in the skin intervention group. Only six kids, less than 1% in the food intervention group had food allergy at three years. So number needed to treat 63 with food interventions to prevent food allergy, mostly peanut, also a little bit of egg, no serious adverse events. So the emollients was like a good try, good thinking. You know, is the atopic dermatitis the cause or the association? Seems pretty clear that it was the association. And so this study basically shows and adds to the literature that early peanut introduction and maybe egg should be introduced in small amounts starting at age three months. Steve, I love the arc of this literature because it is so informative of how we can fool ourselves, how we can think we're so smart because a lot of smart people advocated, you know, especially in the high risk children to not introduce peanuts and eggs early and stuff like that. And they, they made a good case, right? They made a good case from an argument, a pathophysiology and those types of things. But then when we do the high quality studies, we go, oh, huh, the body is a bit different. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little bit more complicated than we thought. My favorite anecdote about peanut allergy is apparently peanut allergy is almost non-existent in Israel because they have this product 
which I don't know if it's called that there, but it's called Bomba. And it's basically like the Cheeto equivalent, but it's made out of peanuts. You can buy it in the US too. I don't really like it. It's kind of nasty, but I guess kids get used to it. And so they eat these like puffed peanut things from an early age. And there's almost no peanut allergy in Israel. Interesting. Bottom line. Early exposure to peanuts and eggs prevents allergy. Regular treatment with skin emollients does not prevent food allergy. Paper nine. Abstract number nine. Can we trust strong recommendations based on low-quality evidence? BMJ 2022. The answer is... Spoiler alert. No. (laughs) Abstract number 10, Steve. (laughs) No, this is a short, just two-page opinion piece by Gord Guyet, and people may recognize him as that, you know, EBM guru out of McMaster University. And he had a couple of other research experts out of the U.S. on this really short. Like, again, it was two pages. Their thesis is that When strong recommendations are based on weak evidence, there is an increase in potential harm. And they assert that strong recommendations should be based on, wait for it, strong evidence. Published where? Journal of Duh? No, yeah, okay. Yeah. So an example of the harm that they give when there is a discordance or a disconnect between the strength of the recommendations and the strength of the evidence is hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women leading to increase in cardiovascular disease? And they give another negative example or another negative consequence of this discordance between recommendations and strength of evidence is the discouragement of future randomized control trials. And remember that evidence-based medicine is not just about the evidence, though. It also involves clinical judgment. But don't forget that third pillar of patience. And so we need to consider you know, what patients would accept. And so some patients might be willing to try a therapy based on low level of evidence if there's a high likelihood that their condition has a bad prognosis or a bad outcome. It's just we should be more transparent and reasonable about our recommendations. Like, I'm not going to give a strong recommendation, but it doesn't mean that the, the patient can't say, well, I know that there's only weak evidence for this, but I'm willing to accept that potential harm. And, you know, this is a devastating condition. If, and so I'm willing to give it. That's fine. That is fine. What we're talking about is, should we have strong recommendations based on weak evidence? And so the ACCAHA and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the ASCO, these are the two groups that generate a heck of a lot of guidelines for the two leading causes of death in our society, heart disease and cancer. And 41% of the ACCAHA guidelines and one in five or 20% of the A. SCO recommendations are discordant. So they have strong recommendations based on weak evidence. So my question is, how many times are we going to be fooled as physicians? Like, how many times are we going to fool ourselves? As Professor Feynman famously said, the first principle is you must not fool yourself. And by the way, you're the easiest person to fool. And that's paraphrasing. So there are so many potential biases that go into published research, and we also know that the harms are systematically underreported. We just had a previous abstract that highlighted that. They only looked for it in about a third of the clinical reviews. So guideline writers often don't even follow the guidelines for writing guidelines created by the Institute of Medicine back in 2011. So large numbers of strong recommendations are based on weak evidence. And, you know, we've looked at even when recommendations are based on high-level evidence, two out of five, or 20%, 
are downgraded, reversed, or omitted in subsequent guideline updates. And we covered that paper back in PCMA October 2014. Yeah, and we will continue to cover guidelines like we did last month with the ACCHA guideline on heart failure. Not because we we hope that you will follow them, you know, robotically. In fact, we hope you won't. But we will call out these areas where there's, you know, strong recommendations based on weak evidence. And there's some organizations that do this well. The American College of Physicians does a good job of giving us just three to five recommendations in the areas and specifically leaning towards the ones that are strong recommendations based on strong evidence. Bottom line. We need to raise the bar, not lower the bar, and proportion our recommendations based on the strength of the evidence. Paper 10. Abstract number 10. It's not rocket science, and it's not brain surgery. It's a walk in the park. Perspective comparative study. This is from the BMJ Christmas edition, which I encourage you all to read every holiday time in December. This one's from 2021. This came to me from my buddy, family physician, Eric Lindblom. He and I have been doing a talk at the National Conference of Family Medicine Students and Residents for about 10 years, where we go over the most important poems, but we always try to throw in some hilarity. So this one certainly applies. So you've heard people say it's like an easy thing to do. It's not rocket science or it's not brain surgery. So these authors wanted to assess those phrases. Who's smarter, brain surgeons or rocket scientists? And so the stated purpose of the study was to, quote, settle this debate once and for all and to provide rocket scientists and brain surgeons with evidence to support their self-assuredness in the company of the other party, unquote. They answered this question by doing an online test to 600 aerospace engineers and 148 neurosurgeons. The online test was Cognitron's Great British Intelligence Test, which measures cognition, planning, reasoning, working memory, attention, and emotion processing abilities. So what are the results? The neurosurgeons had higher scores than the aerospace engineers in semantic problem solving. The aerospace engineers had higher scores in mental manipulation and attention. Compared to the general public, both groups were similar in basically most areas, except for neurosurgeons had quicker problem solving speed, but they also had slower memory recall. So these authors think that maybe a phrase like it's a walk in the park would be more appropriate than it's not rocket science or it's not brain surgery. Steve, I'm surprised you didn't point out the competing conflicts of interest in this study. Three of the authors are <laughs> neurosurgical trainees or residents, and none of them were aerospace engineers. This could have introduced a potential bias. How would you interpret that potential bias and in which direction? Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe the neurosurgeons were just that much smarter that they knew that they would be the one to do the study. Ah, I see what you, oh. If they were going to show that they're smarter than the rocket scientists. Well played, sir. Well played. You've got to read these BMJ holiday edition publications. They are hilarious. 
Yeah, there was one that looked at uh, swearing in the operating room and which specialty swore more in the operating room. Hey, can you hand me a f***ing scalpel? Yeah, no problem. You dumb piece of And also, the benefit of the release of Harry Potter books in preventing injuries in children. Yeah. So, great stuff. Don't ever miss an issue of the BMJ Holiday Edition. I have a professional goal of getting published. Uh, you know, we got to come up with some research project. That's a life goal. A life professional goal would be to put together a study. Maybe you and your friend who do all these reviews could come up with an idea and we could put, I'll be your methodologist, okay? Yeah, you'd have to just have that one stroke of genius when you're randomly at a cocktail party and someone says, it's not rocket science. And then you think to yourself, what is rocket science anyway? <laughs> so I said, if this is the house of pancakes, how come I can't eat the wool? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are too much. Bottom line. Rocket scientists and neurosurgeons don't seem to do better than others on standardized tests. So maybe we should start saying it's a walk in the park. Happy holidays, everyone. I hope that 2023, you have a great new year and that better things are ahead for everyone. Talk to you soon. sum this all up. Summary. Okay, here we are with the summary, and we're kicking it off with PCMA. Stephen Ken and the top 10. PCMA, Article 1. The first paper is Immobilization of Torus Fractures of the Wrist in Children, the FORCE Trial, which is a randomized controlled equivalence trial in the UK, published in The Lancet. So the objective of this trial was to see if a tensor bandage was equivalent to rigid immobilization in kids aged 5 to 14 years who had a wrist buckle fracture. And guess what? There was no statistical difference between the two groups in terms of function and quality of life. Adrian, you do emergency room shifts. And what I need to know is, has your shop adopted this approach to buckle fractures? Yeah, we definitely have backed off a bit in terms of how aggressively we're treating these buckle fractures, but I don't think we're there yet with just sort of a tensor bandage. But having seen this now, I think I'm going to get to that, you know, like we do normally a removable splint, but having seen this, I think I'm just going to go even less aggressive with just a tensor bandage. Article number two is intensive serum urate lowering with oral urate lowering therapy for erosive gout, a randomized double blind controlled trial it was by Dalbeth et al. from 2022. Lower urate levels can, at least in theory, lead to less gout symptoms. So the authors of this study set out to determine if very low urate levels can actually reduce gouty symptoms even further. So this was a randomized controlled trial in New Zealand. They assigned patients to a standard urate target levels versus a very aggressive lower urate target level. Now their protocol for achieving very low levels was uh, actually quite aggressive. You can go and, and listen to uh, Steve talk about this. It, it involved allopurinol with other adjuncts to try and achieve that. Now, the primary endpoint was not patient-oriented. It was bony erosion on CT. And their secondary outcome was a, uh, a gout outcome score. The study found that the intensive lower urate group did achieve lower urate levels, as you'd expect, but there was no difference in the bony erosions on CT. And there was no difference in their clinical gout scores as well. So the bottom line here is that aggressively lowering urate levels does not seem to alter outcomes when compared to standard urate levels. Which is good to know because I've been 
slowly titrating up patients' doses of allopurinol, but I can stop that. So very good to know. Mm-hmm. Cost effectiveness of aducanumab and denanumab. Denanumab? Denanumab. <laughs> it is what it is, it is right? Yeah. Denanumab. Denanumab. For early Alzheimer's disease in the U.S. in JAMA Neurology 2022. And the summary here is basically that this study wanted to estimate the cost effectiveness of two different anti amyloid monoclonal antibodies compared to what we use for standard of care for early Alzheimer's disease. And the premise itself is faulty and frankly ridiculous because these medications don't work. They don't provide any patient-oriented benefits. So end of story here. If it doesn't help patients, who cares about cost-effectiveness? Go back to your drawing board, Big Pharma. Try again. Article number four was factors associated with physician tolerance of uncertainty in observational study. It was by Begin et al., from 2022. So this study looked at physicians' tolerance to uncertainty and whether there was any correlation to that with burnout. So the authors surveyed about 2,000 physicians in the Massachusetts General Hospital System, and they found that a low tolerance to uncertainty was associated with a higher rate of burnout. It was also associated with higher dissatisfaction with the physician's career, and the physicians were less likely to be engaged in their job if they had this lower tolerance to uncertainty. So the thought here, Steve says, is that this is, this is not a definitive study. It's a, it's a survey study, so you can't really draw any definitive conclusions, but it is hypothesis generating. And hopefully in the future, this will lead to more studies looking at this sort of uncertainty principle, and maybe this could help with, with physician burnout in the future. Paper 5, Efficacy of Brief Intervention for Unhealthy Drug Use in Outpatient Medical Care, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis in the Journal of General Internal Medicine 2022. So the objective of this study was to determine how effective a brief intervention in the outpatient setting could be on unhealthy drug use. And it's kind of surprising to me, it found that brief intervention did not help. Now, Ken had his beefs with this paper, including that brief was defined as 25 minutes. But my criticism is not with that time frame. My issue is the length of follow-up because they only looked at patients four and eight months after the intervention. And in family medicine, we play at the long game. Like eight months is a drop in the bucket. It's nothing to us. And what I want to see is I want to see that decade-long study that shows that years of nudging patients in the right direction can help them change their lives. That's what I want to see. Eight months? A decade? Yeah. I'll take note then. I agree with you, Heidi James. I have one question for you. Yeah. Is the plural of beef beefs? <laughs> I would think the plural of beef is beef. Ken had his beef with the paper. Ken had his beefs. <laughs> I would think it's a beef. I am by no means an expert on this topic, on grammatical. Let me ask Google. But I, I would think the plural of beef is beef. It probably is third person present what oh my gosh what i don't think i should take away from that great summary you just did but... <laughs> <laughs> hello heidi and adrian it's me dr google according to emeritus professor of applied language studies at the university of queensland roly sussex the plural of beef is beans thank you for using me goodbye Paper number six, 
Evaluation of Best Practice Advisory on Ordering Prothrombin Time, International Normalized Ratio, and Partial Thromboplastin Time Tests by Breed et al., JAMA Internal Medicine from 2022. So Steve talks about the Cusing Wisely recommendations, uh, stating that PT and PTT are rarely required, and somewhere around 10% of the PT-PTT tests that we order are actually clinically indicated. So uh, if you look at that on the contrary, 90% of the PT-PT tests that we're ordering are without any clear reason at all. So this study was a before and after QI project. It was out of Michigan. And what they did was they put a little pop-up reminder in their EMR. So whenever a physician went to order a PT-PTT, a little pop-up came up and said, are you really sure you want to do this? this is really not based on, you know, a lot of times this is uh, unnecessary. Do you really want to order this test? And you could still order it if you wanted to, but it just had that little reminder there. And they found that after doing this little pop-up, there was a 30% reduction in their test ordering, you know, after that alert started. So, you know, it's something. Yeah, it's something. And something is better than nothing, right? Maybe? Well, I guess so. I guess, I guess so. so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Paper seven. The title here is Most Healthcare Interventions Tested in Cochrane Reviews Are Not Effective According to High Quality Evidence, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. And, I mean, kind of shocking, well, I say that sarcastically because Cochrane never thinks that anything has high levels of evidence supporting it, but this article actually found that 90% of the healthcare interventions published in recent Cochrane reviews are not supported by high-quality evidence. We all kind of practice in that murky world of, well, there's a patient here in front of me, and maybe I don't have high levels of evidence for them, but I still need to do something. Mm -hmm. So I still appreciate Cochrane. Go Cochrane. Thank you. Even if you don't have high-quality evidence for a lot of the things you cover, thank you for doing what you do. Whenever you get a Cochrane review, it's almost certain that they're going to find whatever intervention they're looking at does nothing, you know? Right. There's not high quality evidence supporting it. All right. Eight was early food intervention and skin emollients to prevent food allergy in young adults. The Preventadol Factorial Multicenter Cluster Randomized Trial was from the Lancet 2022. This is a little bit confusing, but it's, it's pretty interesting. So recommendations have changed regarding food allergies in kids over recent years. So the newer recommendations are to start introducing potentially allergenic foods like eggs and peanuts early especially in high-risk infants. Now, we are also aware that there's an association of atopic dermatitis and food allergies. So the authors wanted to know that if we treat eczema alone or in combination with early food introduction, could this actually help reduce food allergies? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Kind of? Yeah. So this was a randomized trial of over 2,400 infants, and they randomized them into one of four groups. So the first group was no intervention. Second group was emollient use. So basically kids got moisturized pretty frequently. Third group was the food intervention group. So that's where parents were instructed to start early feeding of like highly allergenic foods like peanuts and, and milk and eggs at three months. And then the fourth group was a combined group. So that was kids who got both that food intervention and emollients. Okay. So the primary outcome was development of food allergies. They also looked at positive skin prick tests as well. So they found that early introduction of foods reduced food allergy, which we kind of knew already, right? So if you introduce the foods earlier, it seems to reduce the prevalence of food allergies. And again, that was mostly peanuts and sometimes egg allergy. The number needed to treat was 63. Unfortunately, kids that got emollients, they didn't really seem to affect the outcome at all for food allergies. So it was really the, the early introduction that was the beneficial thing. Emollients didn't really do anything. It was a good thought, but didn't really seem to work. 
okay, paper nine, can we trust strong recommendations based on low quality evidence in BMJ 2021? And here's the summary. No. Okay. According to this paper, no, we should not be trusting strong recommendations based on low quality evidence. I mean, I guess the correct answer is, of course, you can't trust it as much as recommendations that are based on high quality evidence. But you know what? I would take a recommendation based on low quality evidence over no direction whatsoever any day. Thank you very much. Give me something. It's a bit nihilistic, isn't it? Sometimes we get like, well, nothing works. So like, what do we do? You know? Yeah, nothing. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I get it. Like we, we want the best quality evidence and like, why are we doing stuff that doesn't have any evidence behind it? But then if we're not doing anything, then uh, what are we doing? Yeah. And sometimes it's just that there is no research in this field. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that there's research that's showing something doesn't work. Sometimes it just means there is no research. When we say there's mm -hmm. no evidence, it's because the study hasn't been done. So yeah. take it away with paper 10. So this was a landmark trial. I don't know if you heard about this one, <laughs> Heidi. This was a big I one. I did. I did, actually. It's still trending on the socials, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah. It's not rocket science, and it's not brain surgery. It's a walk in the park, a prospective comparative study from BMJ 2021. So this was a tongue-in-cheek study in the BMJ holiday edition from last year, and it was to settle the age-old debate, who is smarter, rocket scientists versus neurosurgeons, and they're basically equally smart, and that's based on some standardized questionnaire. So they're both smart. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Then on Reviews and Perspectives with Hobart Lee, Hobie joined me to talk about medication adherence. And we all know that it's hard for many of our patients to take their medications as prescribed. And the vast majority of people are not messing this up intentionally. So in order to help our patients take their meds appropriately, Hobie suggests we first look at the barriers that they're encountering as they try to take their meds. So things like language barriers, health literacy, and finances. And he also outlined ways we can help, like avoiding polypharmacy whenever possible, making sure our patients understand why we're prescribing these medications, and working with community pharmacists and hospital pharmacists to ensure our patients have maximal support. The Generalist. Well, then uh, my pal Cardi and uh, Casey did a great segment on the office use of bedside ultrasound for lymph node assessment. And I, I love this one because I just love when I discover new uses for bedside ultrasound. You know, Heidi, I, I love my ultrasound. Mm -hmm. And um, especially when it's for something like straightforward and something so common, it's just like, I just love it. So Casey describes what a normal lymph node should look like on an ultrasound. So it's basically like, it looks like a little kidney. It's kind of bean shaped. They're often found in clusters. There's a sort of central hyper echoic or brighter area in the middle. And sometimes you can even see small vessels entering through the hilum. Now, superative lymph nodes, when they become infected, they lose that central architecture. And then as they become abscesses, their central area becomes liquefied. And then you can see this thing called pustulosis, which is like purulent material swirling around, which is kind of gross. Uh -huh. And then malignant lymph nodes are larger, uh, they're rounder, and they, they lose that kind of bean-shaped architecture. Postpartum contraception. Postpartum contraception. So Penny Wilson joined me to talk about this important topic and why is it important. 
Well, one of the reasons is we don't want our new moms to get pregnant too soon. We know that short birth intervals are not as optimal for maternal and newborn health, so we want to help make sure our patients don't get pregnant. And what are the contraception options in this group? Well, there is lactational amenorrhea, which is complicated, and you have to follow the certain criteria, which are in the written summary and are not for the faint of heart, but technically, yes, it's an option. Our long-acting reversible contraceptions like IUD and implants are a fantastic option. And whereas combined oral contraception is best avoided until four to six weeks postpartum due to BTE risk and uh, the need to consider impact on breastfeeding. Depression. Then we have depression with Dr. Sean Hersevort and we are seeing increasing numbers of patients with mental health problems in the office and in all the areas in which we practice. So I was so thankful that Dr. Hersevort was able to walk us through both the basics of diagnosis and treatment and then also took us on a really deep dive of all the medication options for depression. And this is really important because more and more often my colleagues and I are needing to, you know, trial a second med, a third med, and adding other agents to, to help our patients. So I really appreciated this deep review. Evaluation of dizziness. So the next one was on urgent care of the dizzy patient. And we know that dizzy patients are challenging, right? Patients have a hard time differentiating vertigo from lightheadedness. The differential for dizziness is really broad. And, and there are these can't-miss diagnoses like posterior circulation strokes hidden amongst the, the common benign causes. Thankfully, Mike and Evie present a relatively simple and straightforward way to categorize these patients. So the, the first thing to look for is a easily identifiable, reversible cause. Now, if there is no obvious medical cause, then they talk about grouping the patients into one of three categories. So the first category being triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. So this is the type of dizziness that comes and goes it's triggered by movement, and the most common cause here is BPPV, okay? The second category is acute vestibular syndrome, and that's where patients have persistent non-triggered dizziness. And the big can't-miss diagnosis here is posterior circulation CVAs, but acute vestibular neuritis can also cause this sort of persistent symptoms as well. And then finally, there's a spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome, and that's where patients experience acute onset of dizziness. It lasts for, you know, some time, and then it resolves. So by the time we're seeing the patient, they're symptom-free. They're, they're feeling relatively okay. And the differential here, it, it's pretty wide. They talk about things like it could be, you know, something fairly benign, like a panic attack, but it could also be something more sinister, like a posterior circulation TIA. Rural medicine talks. So then on rural medicine this month, Julie presents a pretty complicated case of a bariatric patient with respiratory distress. And it highlighted some of the issues of managing a bariatric patient, especially in a rural environment, and how complicated that can be. So things that we might not think of uh, until we're forced to, like, you know, can the patient fit into the usual hospital structure? How do we transfer this patient? Can they fit into a regular ambulance? Do they need a, a different kind of transport team to, to transport them? So my big takeaway from this piece is that we just really need extra help when it comes to this sort of stuff. Like Julie mentioned, she had a whole team discussion on how to manage the patient's airway. She also needed two people just to kind of hold the patient's airway. So great segment, big takeaway, just all hands on deck, get some extra help. Yeah, a little bit scary. Okay, Adrian, well, that wraps up the month and it also wraps up the year. Thank you so much for joining me here to 
say farewell to 2022. Yeah, great being here with you, Heidi. As always, I really enjoyed doing these introductions summaries with you. It was awesome. So if anyone hasn't finished their eggnog and is looking for more CME, be sure to check out EMRAP, check out EMA, check out our board review courses and HD videos. It's like gifts under the MRAP Christmas tree. Ha, so it is. So it is, Adrian. And before we sign off, I just want to wish everyone out there a really good holiday season and hope you get the rest you need to keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters. Matters.